Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Occasionalist. It's Adam Chemielewski here, and on the other side of the uh, of the United States here is Matthew Pagel. Matt, how you doing tonight? I, I'm doing really well. Um, yeah, I'm on the other side of the United States, which means I already know what's going to happen with this podcast. I'm hours ahead of you. Oh, my God. Well, believe me, just hearing that, I got a little bit of a shake in my knees because... I don't know, man. You never know when something like that happens, when the future is unwritten like that. So, yeah, everybody. So today we are going to be talking about Dune. Yes, the 2021 sci-fi epic starring Timothy Chalamet, Oscar Isaac, Javier Bardem. There's a lot of people in this movie. A lot of people in this movie. There's a lot of, and I know we're going to touch on it, a lot of people in the original. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah, dude, definitely. But before we get into the heart of the conversation, I wanted to forego the lightning round to do a little house cleaning from last week's sports episode. Because I am, and I'm very, very happy about this for a lot of different reasons. Number one, because it just affirms that our theory that somebody out there is listening to this podcast as we seem to tell the future every now and then, just like you being on the other side of, uh, on the other side of the country compared to me here in Southern exactly, California. Exactly. I think that's how time works, but I'm not totally I think sure. So. I think so too. <laughs> so the one thing I'm very happy to announce to everybody is that this Guardian's lawsuit settled. And dude, it's settled within this suit was active for less than 20 days. Yep. And I, I am so happy to hear about that. Number one, because it finally puts this discussion to rest. And like I said in the last episode that I believe that this whole thing is just a something to perpetuate, you know, the side that's just like, oh, we should never change the name in the first place and mm-hmm. to give them that one little bit of hope or whatever, where that is, was clearly <laughs> taken away from them. And number two, it means that we get to move on. And now, like, it's just it's over with, dude. We get to finally move on and stuff. And I'm very happy about that. It's something that you know, I'm not going to lie, man. I've had a, I love the conversations that we've had um, during the sports episodes about potential name changes, when it's going to happen and all that. But now we we could just move on and talk about other things involving the team and stuff like that, like the logo and other and the, the writing or whatever it is. And. I'm, I'm just happy about it. Like it's something that has been this conversation thing in Cleveland for a long time. And now it's finally done. It's over. We could put this thing to rest. Exactly. I, I, like, I think, you know, to give like sort of the 10,000 foot view of this, maybe not next year, but like the year after 2023, it, all the people that are quote unquote protesting the guardians. Don't worry. We're going to see them back at progressive field. Like they're they're gonna be there. Like they're gonna forget that they even like fucking cared about this at all, um, because that's just how that, that's how that's how this sort of like social outrage works. People just kind of forget about things after a little while, um, and and once it once it dies down, once the team goes out there and plays, once we get over it, especially if you know they go out there next year and make a run at a playoff spot or win the mm-hmm. central or something, people are gonna not fucking care at all anymore so it's just it's gonna be be over and the quicker that we got this kind of shit resolved the faster we can get to that point yeah dude i'm telling you like i don't know who to thank on this i don't know if we should thank black friday and people for shopping and the fact that the the gear is finally available and in the stores i don't know if we should thank the hockey team for just saying all right we're gonna take whatever let's get this over with like roller derby team team. the roller roller sorry roller derby yeah sorry about that um i don't know who to thank here but a big time thank you to everybody involved for getting this thing uh getting this thing over with and i know like the last time i checked the details of the settlement weren't available um right 
But I, I hope that in time that becomes, you know, they unseal the documents or they get, make their way to the course website so I could take a look at it. But um, and in the end, both teams are going to keep using the name, which um, I, I, I'm totally fine with that. And there's no way in hell that anybody is ever going to confuse the two. And if the Guardians roller derby team got a huge payout, then the more power to them. And like this is just one of those examples where I am 100% fine with somebody using the law to take a little bit of money from a large corporation. Yeah, it's fine by me. I don't, I don't give a shit. But if it turns out we can't pay for a relief pitcher we need next year, then I'm going to be real salty with this fucking roller derby team. <laughs> oh, I don't blame you on that one, dude. I do not blame you on that one. So let's hope to God that this hasn't hit, hasn't hindered any kind of financial commitments or arrangements that they plan it, it hasn't make. i mean i can't imagine it's that much money but like yeah. like they got bent over the barrel for like two million dollars or something <laughs> but but don't i wouldn't i would not put it past paul dolan to make some kind of comments later later in the summer as yeah. like kind of you know not directly mentioning but like sort of trying to play it off like the, like as if this lawsuit was the reason why we couldn't go get somebody that we needed um, of course. Like, bullshit, Paul. You're, again, your family's worth several billion dollars. Like, figure it out. <laughs> oh, I know. People will see right through that one. You know, as they've already seen through a lot of his uh, excuses and things like that to not spend money and all that stuff. So, yeah. uh, hopefully that... Um, if he does go that route, hopefully people, um, you know, aren't billionaire sympathizers and realize what the subtext of what he's saying. there. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> All right, man. So, yeah, I did want to start off with that. Um, somebody out there listening to our advice was just get this thing wrapped up as soon as humanly possible. And uh, I'm glad that I'm glad we could put this thing to rest. So on to oh, wait, real quickly, Dude. real quickly. Oh. Um, yeah. Just since we're in this little mode right here, hopefully Zion is listening too. Uh, get in the fucking treadmill, Zion. Get in the fucking treadmill. Did you? I'm sorry, but like, I, I remember last year during you know during quarantine when the NBA was out. I remember that story about him losing about 20 pounds. Did you like? Did you really look at those pictures that I put up of him next side by side? He's a totally different person. Oh, of course. Oh God, yeah, dude. This guy's like a freaking tank and everything. He's growing at the rate that my cat is and stuff like that. So believe me, my cat and him both will not be able to jump very high in no time. He, I mean, it, it, he looks like, in the one picture, he looks like, he looks like an NFL linebacker, and in the next picture, he looks like, he looks like an overweight NFL guard. <laughs> right. Yeah, I tell you, that guy needs to hit the gym ASAP. Hell, he could go to um, Brown's Fit in the Aloft Hotel and stuff like that that's if right. he wants to. That's yeah. right. Oh, that's, that's been a new um, gym thing that Jess and I have been, because Jess used to go to that gym when it was EB Fitness. So mm -hmm. since I listened to 92.3 all day, we hear commercials for that all the time and stuff. And that gym is just, we've gotten a lot of mileage out of cracking jokes about that gym the last couple of days. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Anyway, get, get back oh, to it. No problem, dude. Anytime we could, um, anytime we can motivate Zion to get healthier, I'm all for it. That's for sure. <laughs> so, all right, dude. So yes, getting into Dune. Yes. I'm very excited to talk about this. It's been a while. Um, God, it's just been a while since we've been, the, the, the suspense and the tension and everything has just been building through all the trailers. And now I'm finally, I saw it and now I'm, fucking finally happy to uh to talk about it yep a year a year um, and a half later 
I know a year and a half later, man, like yeah. I can't the, the conversation that I have, the one sided conversation that I have with Jess on our way home from seeing the Batman is going to be epic. Okay. Like, <laughs> it's just going to be me talking to her and getting, uh-huh. And yeah, uh-huh, for like mm-hmm. 45 minutes, it's going to be great. So um, before I, before we get into something, I just had a really quick question. Did you make it to the theater? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Oh yeah. I was not going to watch this one only on HBO max. Like uh, there's no, there is no chance, especially first viewing, no chance. Yeah. Not a ch- dude. I went to, um, the Cinemark out here. I saw it in the XD and everything, which was largely because of time and convenience and everything. I, if I would have had the, the chance to pay $5 less, I totally would have. And, and that <laughs> I, I kind of, I wanted to see it like in the XD, but like it was every show time for it was like nine o'clock at night, like in a weekday. And I'm like, Hmm. Nope, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> or, or it was like in the middle of a football, you know, Browns game or Ohio State game or something, and I'm just like, mm-hmm. God damn it! Like, I guess I'm just going to go down to, you know, go over to Macedonia. Yeah, dude, the, out here they, it was the reversal for me. Like all the, all the times that were convenient for me were in XD. Everything mm. else was at weirdly weird random times throughout the course of the day and stuff like that. So, but I'm very happy that I did. And, um, you know, second movie, uh, going to the theater since COVID and stuff. And, um, my theater fatigue that I experienced when I saw James Bond, meaning I got up to go to the bathroom five times was non-existent for Dune. I want to ask, did you have any kind of theater fatigue in any way? No. Um, I, and actually I had that like moment about like an hour and a half in where I'm kind of like, ah, fuck, I kind of have to pee. And then like, that's about when things really start to like kick up. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I shouldn't say really start to kick up, but like that's sort of like where um, a lot of, and I know we're going to talk about this, so I won't get too far into it. A lot of some of the early story seeds really start to like kind of pan out. And mm-hmm. I like all of a sudden, like the next hour just like flew by. So no, like none at all. Also, I was the only person in that theater at all. Period. Oh. Interesting. Very yeah. nice. I, I love it when I'm the only person in the theater. I maybe had 15 or 20 in the theater, with no, that's me, not bad which, is, which, which is great. It was with the huge theater and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it felt like I had like nobody around me, which is really great and everything. And I'm very happy to hear that you did not have any theater fatigue. Like I, I only went to the bathroom once and it was right after all the stuff that um, went down and everything. But that was, but that was it. And it was because I slammed two large Cokes before the, uh, before oh, that was the a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Really, really bad idea, man. Really bad. But you you free... need a still suit. I dude, I definitely do. I would have gotten a lot of, <laughs> I would have gotten a lot out of that. I really need one of those just so I can just pee my pants all the time. <laughs> I know that is seriously the one thing that I'm like, how have we not had this for humans yet? Like a human waste filtration system. sounds like the greatest thing ever. And like the fact that it keeps you cool too. Like I would walk around the salt and sea all we'd live down there. If they had fucking still suits and everything. Absolutely. Any, any excuse for me just to pee my pants in public (laughs) while I'm in front of someone talking to them. That's, that's what I want to do. You notice how they didn't address the smell factor though. Are we just safe to assume that the smell stays locked in? It has to. Otherwise these people would be disgusting. Yeah, yeah. There'd be no way in hell that, like, even Zendaya for being extremely attractive. There's no way in hell that that you could you could mask that with a you know, days and days of peace. No, in that you thing. you take you take her fucking still suit off. It's just 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 the most foul odor. I mean, imagine how imagine how gross that like your your you know the liquid that you're drinking back. It has mm-hmm. to like even if you're filtering out all the bacteria and stuff. It's still like liquid that was. It just has to be gross. 
Oh yeah, dude. Like in the movie when Paul gives Jessica that pouch and everything when they're in the tent, I'm, I quivered a little bit. It's like, oh, here's some sweat and some reclaimed water. So, like, oh god, no, no, don't drink that. But um, yeah, totally fucking gross on that. So anyway, yeah, I just had to get that out there. I'm like my theater fatigue. It's going to be a while, I think, before I'm going to need about two or three more movies before I'm able to sit through one um, in its entirety again. But I'm building it up, man. It's a, it's a slow thing, but I'm doing it here. So, OK, so let's dive into it. Um, starting off, what do you find the most interesting about Dune when compared to other science fiction movies, television shows or books? It's less it's less of a comparison factor with me. Um, because it's it's almost like not fair because without dune most things in modern sci-fi don't exist um Mm -hmm. star wars does not exist without dune game of thrones does not exist without dune avatar does not exist without dune the matrix doesn't exist without dune like these things do not exist or happen without dune star trek does not happen without dune yeah. Oh, my God. Like you could as you are reading, like either reading the book or watching the movie. And I um, um, you could tell that there are like either major things or little things in every single one of the intellectual properties that you just mentioned and stuff like Game of Thrones took three books to get where the first hour and a half of or it's three seasons, three books to get where like the first hour and a half of Dune gets and mm-hmm. all the, and this kind of similarities that run along with that plot and everything. And like, I hear what you're saying here, dude, like it is kind of like without comparison, dude, like this is one of those foundational, like, you know, monumental works of science fiction that in some way, shape or form, if you could do one of those like crazy webs that link everything together, I'd probably be safe to assume that this web would be fucking massive with a billion different intellectual properties. And at the top would be like Dune and two other stories. Right, right. Exactly. I mean, some of them are, are less direct. Like when I mentioned like the Matrix, it's a it's a Paul Atreides type story. Um, mm-hmm. It's not I, I don't think the Wachowskis were directly influenced by Dune, but sh- Clearly, they're influenced by other sci-fi properties that were influenced by Dune. Um, you know, Avatar is, you know, Avatar is a, a very blunt, more environmentally focused re- Dune remake, if you will. But I, I'm sure James Cameron, it's stuff that James Cameron had in his mind that, you know, existed independently of, of the idea of Dune. But again, like Dune is a fa- so foundational that he surely read and absorbed stories that informed that. So it's, you know, those ones are less direct. Star Wars is very direct. Um, oh, yeah. Star Wars, the attempt, the, the, like the original attempts at Star Wars were to make Dune until mm-hmm. the story and everything got changed to be more of the space opera um, as opposed to like this harder science fiction thing. So like Star Wars does not exist without Dune. Oh, God. Yeah, I'm telling you, even the idea of like the desert planets and stuff like that. I mean, there's right. like specifics in there that um, Star Wars like definitely picked up the idea of this emperor that we probably won't meet till the third movie and stuff, you know. So there's a lot of these different things like throughout Star Wars and I mean, particularly Star Wars that um, you can mm-hmm. see a lot of parallels in Dune. And like for me, like um, I'll, I'll tell you, man, like I'm really new to this whole thing. Um, I, I jumped on the Dune bandwagon when I saw the trailer for the new one, like way back a year and a half ago. And I was so blown away by the trailer. This was like one of those things that um, I get to watch on screen, but also have a book with me and stuff that I could read and a bunch of different fan Wikipedia sites and crazy theories. So this has kind of become 
a light Game of Thrones for me because like I went hardcore into the Game of Thrones books. And one of the things that like really just caps my interest, I'm telling you, this is it's it's really just a simple thing, but I love this whole Middle Ages in the galaxy type thing, you know, where we're getting you know, there's obviously technology, you know, and there's and there's evidence of that with the, the ships and all this different stuff. Mm. But you get castles and then there's like there's swords and stuff. There's not a lot of gun use. Everything is like more stripped down. Like it, it basically feels like somebody took Game of Thrones and made it into a, or a sci-fi experience, you know. Right, or, right. And then, so, and like um, being that I haven't had the watch on TV, take with you and read thing in a while. Um, this has just been one of those things that I really like really harped up on. Like, I, I love that part about it. And I'm not going to lie. I'm a, I'm kind of a fan of the whole sandworms thing, which will save that part of the discussion for a little bit later and everything. So, mm-hmm. uh, so moving right along, um, just quickly, have you read the, the book or have you seen that miniseries, basically any other Dune stuff outside of the two movies? No, actually I haven't. Like, um, and it's weird cause I'm fairly familiar with, with Herbert's Dune. Like I actually am, but it's from mm-hmm. like reading, or, you know, it's from reading like entertainment articles and actually like more scholarly articles about it and like how it's influenced, how it's, how like foundational it is to like modern sci-fi. Um, and like some other like you know seeing some other documentaries and stuff on it like that's like where my information from dune comes from um but okay. I, I haven't seen the miniseries nor have i seen the um there's also an attempt at a series children of dune um that i haven't seen either okay gotcha i same as you i have not seen any of the series i have read the book um i picked up the book um like no joke man all I've been reading are screenwriting stuff, um, st- books about shooting movies, and I read Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, like, I am just – I needed something that wasn't an instructional booklet for screenwriting or how to shoot a movie or something like that. So I'm like, okay, here's a movie. I happen to really like the trailer that's coming out. I'm going to read the book, and I marathoned through the last um, two books of the four that are in the book, Dune. There's four different books. Right. I mar- marathoned through the last two um, in the last couple weeks, kind of leading up to this episode and stuff like that. I Just just in case any knowledge from the books might have be helpful to the discussion and everything. But I'll be honest with you. The book's good, um, but there's it's there's some things that I kind of like, don't like about it. Like Mm -hmm. we don't really get to see a lot of the action. Like, you know, the big battle scenes are the Harkonnens arrive. And then the next chapter, Paul and Jessica are already outside of the castle, you know? So um, a a lot of things like that, that, um, you know, I just won't get into too many of the details and stuff, but um, I, Oh, sorry. 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 No, go ahead. I was just, I was just going to say that like I did, I did enjoy the book and it kind of, it gave me a nice like little bit of like a foundation and kind of like backdrop to, you know, to, to enjoy the movie a little bit more. Yes. Yeah. A, a lot of the articles I've read recently, um, the, like in the last like three weeks, I've read a lot of articles about the 1984 Dune, this mm-hmm. Dune, the current Dune. And then like in the book, obviously the, well, the book series. Um, and some of the, some of the ones like, you know, disc- discussing the book series were like, yes, this is a, this is an absolute foundational piece of what modern sci-fi is, both print and and you know visual media. But also, like, there's a lot of people that will tell you who are like real interested in in like in literary fiction and like who make their like work, make their lives like you know discussing and and, and dissecting this kind of stuff. Who will tell you that mm-hmm. Dune's not that great? 
<laughs> and it's like for no. a reason because like it's just yeah it, it's it's you know it has like some it has some methods and things in it and and some ideas and things in it that like have spawned for, you know like when we talk about game of thrones like that kind of world building not that it was diff, not that it was like brand new when frank herbert started doing it but like that's that was like a piece that was something that really didn't you didn't get the, these sprawling chapters that were just like describe like the you know the politics and like the land and mm-hmm. right. you know that moves forward and like everyone not everyone but a lot of authors do that going forward even if it's not like that compelling in a book like dune yeah oh my god man like there when you get into like the beginning couple chapters like there's just so many different names and what people look like and stuff like that to learn and then you absorb all that and everything starts to be everything's cool you get the you know the scene with um paul putting his hand in the box mm-hmm. you get some introduction to the villains and everything and then, like, it's building, it's all building for the big, you know, Harkonnen invasion or Conan invasion. And then you're just like, okay, here come the ships. And then right away, we're in the desert with something else, you mm-hmm. know. And even and even as, like, you get into um, the, the story further, there are things where it's like, man, like, it's just it's like one of those books that's like just totally meant to become a movie. This is like, this book was like meant to be transformed into the visual medium mm-hmm. because there is just so much stuff that they leave out. And some of the stuff that they leave out is like the high intensity parts where like, I would be so hooked in as a reader if I like at least got to experience like maybe Paul and Jessica, like sneaking off to the thopter to get away from the castle or something like that, you know, like, are they going to get caught? Who's going to somebody on their tail, like that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. And instead it just kind of jumps forward. Mm -hmm. So like, that's, that's one of my main gripes about the book. But I mean, there's some dude, there's some crazy interesting stuff in there that they didn't even put in the movie. Like there's this whole, um, like, uh, this whole business on Arrakis where, um, there's this tradition of like the wealthy coming in to eat dinner. And when they eat dinner, they like, take some water out of a, um, like a trough and they splash their face with it and spill the water on the ground. There's all these people that like soak up the water and then sell it to people like in the streets and stuff. There's like all these like cool little things that, you know, in the end, that's not going to make the movie any better, but it doesn't doesn't matter. Really cool, interesting stuff, you know? Yeah. The the Fremen draining people of their blood to drink. Yeah. Like that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 And like, I, I got to tell you, like th- those were some of the things that, like, I'm that I'm remembering more so than like the word-for-word image of like what the Harkonnen invasion looks like. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, in in a brief, like, no more than four sentence summary, what's your overall thoughts on um, on the 2021 Dune? Yeah. So this is another work of art, a legitimate work of art from Denis Villeneuve that is probably going to be misunderstood by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. especially people who are expecting as some of the as some of the um, advertisements for the trailer commercials for it go um, especially people who are expecting the quote unquote next Star Wars and thinking that it's going to be the next modern Star Wars and not the original Star Wars no I, I got you on that dude that's very very interesting and you're right I've seen a lot of like Dune, this is the next Star Wars, all that kind of stuff and everything. And like, I, I don't necessarily believe that this is a, uh, Not a billion dollar franchise or nope. anything like that. Um, but like you are hitting it on the fucking head with that work of art thing, dude. My God, this was 
this was like watching like art in motion and stuff like that for a big blockbuster Hollywood sci-fi movie and everything. And that's a really good way to put it. And like, I, I put it as just a, a solid foundation for building the Dune universe. And like, I got to say for having the big battle scene in the middle, it held me all the way to the fucking end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Denny, like, I think I, I like how you put this. Like, if this isn't going to be a billion dollar franchise, I don't, well, it's going to be a franchise, whether or not uh, Villeneuve, how much, you know, beyond the second movie, and we'll get to this later, but mm-hmm. beyond the second movie, how much Villeneuve is uh, actually involved in it, who knows. But there's going to be spinoffs and things like that. But, like, this isn't going to be, this isn't going to be something that racks up, like, $2 billion. Um, right. I think Villeneuve is eventually going to land something like that, but, like, this isn't it. And that's not a knock against it. It's just, it's hard to, it's hard to... When you're talking about like things that are like our, our visual masterpieces, those things usually don't make seven hundred, eight hundred million dollars per movie. Right. Oh yeah, dude. And like, they're, on top of them not bringing in that high in numbers, kids aren't going to be having Dune lunchboxes. You know nope. what I'm saying? You're you're not going to see shirts that say like, "Oh my God, the spice" or whatever on them. You know, there's mm-hmm. not. I mean, I know that they're doing merchandising for the movie and stuff. It happens with every movie, but they're not doing it on a mass scale that Star Wars is like. Everything in the world that you can think of in terms of products, like this goes from anywhere from the stuff you could use to make ice, like ice cube trays, all the way down to a themed like video game console. Star Wars has its hands in, you know, like Dune, we're probably looking at posters and T-shirts. If there are action figures out there, I would be very surprised. And there's probably just stuff that is on such a small production. They probably only exist. Oh, I'm looking at them right now. There are Dune Funko Pops. That I, okay, that I could see. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Do, are there like are there other action figures like where you know you buy a set or they bend and have weapons and stuff like uh, that? Uh, let me let me search, but continue your point here. Okay, so I with um I just like I don't see that coming out of this movie because this movie is I don't I don't feel that this is something that is like geared to like the masses and i I know that this is a big blockbuster movie and it made a bunch of money and stuff so a lot of people have seen it Mm -hmm. but i don't believe that it is geared towards like younger people and children the way that star wars is you would be correct so there are dune action figures uh but they are they're not like they're not toys these are they're made by like mcfarlane uh toys okay so they're definitely for like adult collectors Okay, gotcha. Yeah, Funko doesn't surprise me. By the by, the time uh, we hit the year twenty sixty, you and I will have Funko figures. Okay, like Funko <laughs> right. make, these make two obscure forever. podcasters from forty years ago. <laughs> oh my god, get them! They're limited Comic Con editions. <laughs> so like that, you know, the way that they're, you know, that's just something that I see. Like I, yeah. I, I like, can I see kids getting into this? Like, no. Yeah, I, I don't. Well, no, smart, yes, smart kids. Like, but but not, not every kid. Yeah. No one's no one's going to be dressed up as Baron Harkonnen for Halloween as a kid. Right. Yeah, you are definitely not getting laid if you're wearing that costume. Okay, mm. that is for sure. But, like, yeah, dude, like, I, I'll tell you outright, like, that if I was, like, you know, a 10 or 12, this movie might might go over my head in favor of The Mandalorian or something like that. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm like, the. I, I guarantee you those action figures from McFarlane are probably pretty dope, but those are like collector's items type things. Like, you know, it's best you like don't take them out of the box. Or yeah, they, they, I mean, they're, yeah, they're real. They're not like, you can tell they're not toys. Like you prop them up and then you put them on a shelf. 
Yeah, of course. The Which collectors... is like most, most Nick Farland toys. Yeah, like those conversation collector's items pieces mm-hmm. and something that I long to have in my future whenever Jess allows me for that. My Funko stuff is, click, is um, just reserved for one shelf where no one can see it. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so moving along, we're going to get into um, the characters, the effects, the story. Got a couple questions comparing the, the two movies, the 1984 and the 2021 movies. So we're going to start off with the characters. I brought it, broken it down into we got House Artreides, House Harkonnen, we got the Fremen, and then there's a wild card where you can just kind of pick any character to talk about. So leading off with the House Atreides, which um, I found this on the Dune Wikipedia fan page site, and I thought this was kind of interesting that um, they say that the family is supposed to have originated in ancient Greece and is actually connected to uh, Agamemnon in some Atreus. way, shape, or form. Atreus yeah, is the Atreus. father of Agamemnon yeah. and, and um, who is Agamemnon's brother. Um, that that started the whole fucking Trojan War. Um, but yeah, I oh, mean, well, it's they're not real. It's it's Menelaus. Yeah, um, they're not real. I mean, Atreus is a is like a god figure, so like they're not real. Right, right, yeah. yeah. But I I like that they, you know, um, I like that there's this cool kind of ancient Greece connection mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And I, I got some more stuff to say about the past and everything when we get along a little bit further into it. But I did appreciate that there's. Somebody out there on the internet, like, you know, connected this, and maybe it's in the canon somewhere, but I'm not too familiar with the details of the whole Dune canon and stuff. So, like, one of the things that I remember about this is that, like, it's, they're, you know, like, the base, well, all the the humans are from Earth. Like, it's not, all the humans presented, none of these people are aliens, quote-unquote. They're all, they can all be traced back to Earth, back, you know, from, like, our time. Um what it like what it really like uh, supposedly what the the kind of the um the idea with uh house you know with, or with atreus or whoever the original atreus was for this particular lineage they just like took the name from okay like, it wasn't like it like there isn't like a long like someone at some point in time was just like uh yeah my last name's atreus and <laughs> I gotcha. it goes forward gotcha gotcha yeah that's like i still like i i really appreciate those kind of connections though you oh, know? Yeah, and especially sure. like come come from greek mythology and everything and what and it's something that i think it just furthers the mythology of like the whole world and stuff to have this kind of like you know to have this earth connection and like i'll get to i'll get to some of the stuff i'm just really holding off from trying to talk about everything that happened oh, sure, before sure. the movie so i'm doing my best to segue here which i will do right now and uh on a scale of one to ten how would you rate Timothy Chalamet's performance as Paul Atreides? So I'm gonna I'm gonna give him an eight out of ten, um, okay. and this is because I don't think I don't think Timothy Chalamet is capable of a bad performance at at, at this point. Like I haven't seen him in anything where I'm like, oh, he's not good in this. Um, right. I, and and this goes this is like a slight comparison and a little bit of a dig at the 1984 one. He's also believably the right age for Paul Atreides. Versus mm-hmm. Kyle MacLachlan's almost thirty-year-old. I mean, they're actually like the same age that they're playing. Yeah. That they're playing this character, but because Tim- Timothy Chalamet is going to be sixteen forever, um, he actually looks <laughs> like he's the right age to be Paul Atreides. Like Paul Atreides is supposed to be like sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, somewhere mm-hmm. in that range. Um, going maybe it's just because like men back in the eighties all looked like they were like forty. Um, Kyle MacLachlan looks like way too old to be Paul Atreides. Oh my God, way too fucking old to be Paul. Like, like, I can maybe see how, like, 
like, yes, he's like younger in the face, but compared to what he looks like now, but that's right. not a phase of like, I think Paul in the beginning of the book starts off where he's around 14 or 15. Yeah. And then he rounds up, ends up around 17 or 18 because there's this like two year period of where they're going on the raids and stuff. So, um, like Chalamet looks like way, I mean, like he just definitely has that look going for him and everything he, like he's that. He's got that, he's got that boyish look. And then, you know, which, uh, you know, helps sell him as being younger than he actually is. Cause I think he's like 20, 25 or 26, whatever it is. Um, so he just looks younger. Um, he also like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what it is. He's very good at, at being, he's very good at being vulnerable, which you'd need to be for this Paul Atreides character. Um, mm-hmm. that he's got to like, he's got to straddle that line of like kind of being a vulnerable kid, a vulnerable kid. And also like on the correct track to becoming a very all powerful human being. And it, it's sort of, and I think this is more the fault of the 1984 version of this movie. Like at no point in time, do I feel like, um, that Paul Atreides is a vulnerable kid. Like he's almost immediately already a powerful warrior. Oh my God. Yeah, no, that's a really good point too. Yeah, you're right. There's like, he, Chalamet's like vulnerability. It's like, it's hard to actually like, I think like like, put it into words, but he just has it, you know, he has this look and even in the tone of his voice, like the tone of his voice, which actually number one is a really, really cool voice, but it's also not this voice of like a super confident, like person, you know, at least in in how he did, like Mm -hmm. not what I, associate with confidence anyway so there is just this whole thing and i mean not to mention too he's like he's a little bit little littler not just in height but like you know he's got he's a thin not frame like a, yeah a thin frame you're not like a super jacked up dude or anything like i mean like him like momoa looks like two of him you know? <laughs> right so, so, so but like and because he kind of has this package like the vulnerability thing really works for him and i also think that it um what it does is it um it makes the struggle that he's going through seem greater to me, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I, I believe me, like the guy had his whole family wiped out. He's alone in this, like with his mom in this hostile planet in terms of like living conditions and everything. And because he's not, because we're not looking at like a 17 or 18 year old version of Arnold Schwarzenegger, it seems to make like his, his struggle is like, um, is, is greater to me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a really good point. He really sells that struggle like pretty hard. And again, I think it's again, I just think it's the fault of the original movie that it, it's like he goes from he, he goes from like zero to sixty, if you will, in a heartbeat. Like he's he goes from he goes from just being down on his luck to like raising an army literally. I think within fifteen minutes in that movie. Mm-hmm. Something yeah. Like oh that. yeah. You bet. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's uh he's taught them how to use weapons and they're already on the raids within like a half an hour of each other and yeah. stuff. And they've completed the raids within 40 minutes. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, dude, no, you got that. You got that right on the head. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm at just one point lower than you. Like I'm at just, I'm at a seven and mm-hmm. everything. I thought that he did a great job for all of the reasons that you had just described. And like, I'm particularly like, I'm particularly in on the look and everything. Like, I mean, that is just a major difference um, between 2021 and 1984. Um, I will say, like, I I don't think, like, I couldn't give him a 10 just because we're not at the point in the story where things real where the, the Jets start to get t- t- turned up to 11. You know what I'm saying? Yes. So, yes. like, that will come in time. But, like, if it's almost like if I would have sat in the movies and watched, like, six hours, Dune 1 and 2, 
I'd probably be coming in here and being like eleven out of ten. The guy just knocked it out of the park. That's but we're not we're not yeah. there yet. Yeah, that was exactly my reasoning to give him an eight out of ten. It's just the character is incomplete yet. So mm-hmm. we'll we'll check back into this in twenty twenty three. Yes. Twenty twenty three. If we're all still alive. Um we'll check yeah. back on this in twenty twenty three and I have a I can't imagine that Timothy Chalamet is gonna become a worse actor in between now and then. So it, it might be bumped up to a ten by then. Yeah, dude, I got like he's had two movies between French Dispatch and Dune, which dropped either on the same day or a week of each other. And then he's got the um, Don't Look Up movie with Adam McKay and DiCaprio, Jonah Hill. He's having like, he's having a year like Josh Brolin had in like 2008, man. Like he is just fucking killing it right now. There, and I'm excited uh, to see everything he's in. I, oh, I like, I, I'm, I am a, I'm a Chim- Timothy uh, Chalamet stan. However, we're going to get to some critical mass in like 2024 where the only two men allowed to be in movies are Timothy Chalamet and, and Tom Holland. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. The only two that are allowed to be in everything. I could, I could see that happening, dude. And like, dude, Tom Holland did a magazine shoot. I saw it on Instagram, a couple photos, things like men's health or GQ. He still looks like a 17 year old. Like it, he's well into his twenties and stuff. He yep. looks really young. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he, both of them. Like, it's ridiculous. They're going to be playing. It's sort of like. It, so you know who uh, Eric Balfour is? That name sounds familiar. I drawing a blank on the face. Big, big, tall actor who's always black hair, black goatee, looks kind of jacked. Um, he was in this movie Skyline. I don't know if you've seen that um, with like Donald Faison and some other people. Um, you'd know him if you saw him, dude. He, the guy's in like everything, but like. This guy at no point in time has ever looked like a teenager, but I swear to God, he, for oh, the better yeah. part of, like, 15 years, played a teenager in various in, in various things. And, like, if he can do it, then Timothy Chalamet and Tom Holland could play teenagers for the next 25 years. Yeah, I know exactly who this guy is, and um, he was playing teenagers. Like He was in As Good As It Gets. He's one of Skeet Ulrich's friends who um, mm-hmm. break into Greg Kinnear's house, mm-hmm. and he was playing teenagers back then and stuff like right. that, you know, and he, God, man, he was, this guy's just shown up in, like, a lot of different things, and, like, I know him primarily from uh, 24, but um, you're right, dude, this guy's just been, like, making a freaking living, like, like almost like Skeet Ulrich, where you're just playing teenagers, like, forever. And he, and he does not look like a teenager at all. Like, no, at all. His, his head size alone is not the size of a teenager's head, okay? Like, even if even if you're um, really generous in terms of height, like, that is still not a, a head of a teenager. No, teenage most, <laughs> most, like, it's one of those things, when you're, like, in Hollywood, and you're, like, six foot three... 200 pounds like you you've already even if you are like 17 you've already like physically put yourself out of range of being a teenager yeah that's right yeah exactly i i know right and this guy seems to do it all so well and it's just that that goatee and all that he's got that whole like um rocking bad boy thing from the 90s like Mm -hmm. i could see him wearing a leather jacket with the ripped jeans and stuff oh there's there is definitely a movie exactly with him wearing that yes I, I believe it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I t- he's probably wearing it right now. <laughs> probably. Why not? <laughs> oh my god! I, like I'm, I'm having a total flashback because um, I'm sure you. I'm just going to get off topic. I just got to tell you about this. You're going to love this. So, do you remember this guy Simon Rex, who was a VJ on uh, oh, yeah. MTV and stuff? Yep. He's made a couple appearances. He's in this movie, and I cannot remember what it's called, but it's premiering next month at the New Beverly, and it's getting rave fucking reviews. It's like an indie flick and stuff, and um. 
I'm seeing this. I'm seeing a lot of Simon Rex and Eric Bolfer. Like to me, it's like Eric is just like Simon without the goatee. Yeah, I can. Uh, yeah, a hundred percent can see can see that. What, yeah, for sure. Like there's that. That's a really good comparison. Yeah, it's just all like that. Just that little block of the '90s that's still like alive today, you know, and still still kicking it and everything. So, okay, man. So, um, who out of the who is your non Paul? Uh, standout character from House of Trades and why? So I, I think it, I mean, th- there's obviously some choices here, but I think it's got to be Lady Jessica, um, uh, played by Rebecca Ferguson, simply because she, besides Paul, her character has the most time to develop. And mm-hmm. she has like the most, the most complete arc of anyone else in House of Trades besides Paul. Um, you know, so, I mean, when you think about it, everyone else in the house is dead or presumed dead. So, right. um, you know, so we get to see her from, you know, go from uh, sort of the, uh, you know, not, I don't want to say questioning what her motives are, but like her motives being a little bit in the dark um, mm-hmm. with her association with the Bene Gesserit. And we get to see her going from that to like kind of kind of fulfilling what uh, Leto wanted, like protect my son. Like this is, yeah. I, I don't care about anything else. You just... Not from a not not from the standpoint of like what your order is. I want you to protect my son as a mother would. So like we get to see that more complete arc for for her than we do really anyone else in in House of Trades. Yes, she is by far and away the like the only like real complete arc out of the entire house. That is a hundred percent. And this like a, this affiliation that she has with the Bene Gesserit really like. I don't there it just leaves like this a lot of ambiguity in the character mm-hmm. because it makes you wonder like is she loyal to them is she loyal to what Leto wants and the just like the family in general like what exactly is her loyalty and stuff and then by the end of the movie like you know it's it's clear like it's the all in her son and question. stuff yeah. like that yeah exactly yeah. and like the entire time that I'm watching it it's like I never expected anything crazy extreme. Like I never expected her to like kill her son or something like George mm-hmm. R. R. Martin would do that, you know, but, right. but that's not happening here. So I expected something kind of extreme to happen, but then it didn't happen. And it made me happy because if that extreme thing would have been put in there and I know that it's not in the book. So like, you, you know, but if the, the whole thing would have been in there. I really think that you would just be going for like a, a shock value, like not an organic twist, just like something that would have completely like thrown the audience off. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she ended up rounding out her, um, her character arc and being the loyal mom works really, really well because there's a lot of things that um, she's going to go through in the next couple of movies that, you know, number one, we get to do, we do get a big twist about her and stuff like that, which is cool. But there's all this like, kind of natural mother stuff that starts to develop when Paul, Paul forms his relationship with Chani and that relationship gets farther. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, where we're at now is a really, really good ending point for the first movie, but also a great jumping off point for the, for the future of the story. Gotcha. Yes. Yes. I gotcha. I, that, that was one of those, that was one of those. um, I, I, I know I like, I know some people have complained about like, the way the movie ends and I'm like, well, this is like, this is like a natural jumping off point for where we're going to go. Cause like the movie's about to the, if you, this movie kept going, it would change very radically in the next, yeah. however long. So like, this is a perfect jumping off point. Yeah. Good, good call. 
Yeah, dude. I'm. I thought that they ended it on the on the appropriate note in in all like all elements and stuff like that here. So like I, I was very happy with with the way that just everything and stuff like that. I'll get into the story a little bit later, but um, I was very 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 satisfied with the way that it ended. And like I chose, I went a little bit more generic on mine. Like I love the Josh Brolin in this movie. He's good. And, like, I'm a, I'm a total Brolin fan. Like I, I'm loving his little, like um, not little, it's been going on for over 10 years now. This kind of like a second run that he had in Hollywood as an older guy. And there is something about him in this role of Gurney that like, number one, I buy a hundred percent. Like there is nothing here that like, I feel that they need to sell me. Like I've already bought it. And he just has this really cool, and great relationship with the other characters and stuff. And it's good to, I guess it's good to see Brolin like that instead of a Thanos or cable or like even these, um, you know, kind of strong, but not as vocal like protagonist that he's done, like in no country for old men. And I'm going to throw Jonah hex in there. Cause it's the only thing that's coming up the top of my head, but just like, you know, he's not like how he is in some of his other movies. And like, I thought it was really cool to see this side of him. Um, I, you know, I love the way that they kind of ended with him and mainly cause we know that Gurney does come back in time. So we will get Whoa, spoiler alert. Spo- yeah. Sorry. By the like, way, folks, I- if you've been listening to this far, there's a lot of spoilers that are going to be happening. So sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm doing everything possible. And stuff it doesn't matter. Like if, if this, if you've gotten to this point and you're like still wondering, yeah, there's going to be some spoilers. No, that, that's true. This movie has been available for people to either watch in the theater or you could save yourself the money of going to the theater and buy one month of HBO max to watch this movie. So yeah, you're making a good point there. So when, when he does come back, we're going to get that whole like complete arc and everything like that. But um, all in all, I thought Josh Brolin brought a really great presence to a movie that was already filled up with a ton of great presences. Yes. Yes. I have, I have more thoughts on Brolin later. Um, and it's one of those things, like, this is this this Gurney character, it's a little bit of a one-note character, which is totally fine. We don't need him to be, like, completely fleshed out, have too many thoughts and motivations and everything. But it's, like, yeah. this is one of those things, like, when more one-note or one-dimensional characters are played by really good actors, they play mm-hmm. the fucking shit out of that one-note. Oh, I know, man. It's like, it's a whole completely different thing. And like, I'll tell you, like even Patrick Stewart, like I fucking love Patrick Stewart. And I had rewatched the Dune 84 for the first time in a long time, about three months ago. Right. I I totally forgot that he was in it. Yeah, dude, me too. Totally fucking forgot it. I loved it. And like, I thought he did a great job Mm -hmm. as Bernie too. And like, you could tell like if, um, if it wasn't like an an A or B list actor, like like the like the Brolin caliber actors, this role I think would have been on the more forgettable side. Mm-hmm. But there is just something about seeing like Josh Brolin, who's like he's just a fucking beast, like man's man, you know, just having, you know, being a stud when he has to be, but also being this just cool relatable almost like uncle type to paul and everything like it was just a wholesome side of him that um, we don't really get to see all that often and it complemented everything else very well mm-hmm. I totally agree totally agree very nice so let's move on to house harkonnen which um i gotta tell you i was reading again on the dune wikipedia page that um this family supposedly originated in finland and everything like mm-hmm. in scandinavia 
just an absolute perfect casting job that they got Stellan Skarsgård to be um, oh, he's the awesome. Baron. Yep. And he was, he was perfect aside from this um, Scandinavian connection and everything like that to the family. I think, so I think it, in general, Denny Villeneuve seems to like Scandinavian actors and actresses. Between Skarsgård, Rebecca Ferguson, uh, and from Blade Runner, Sylvia Hooks, like he he loves these like Danish these these Norwegian and Danish and Scandinavian actors. He likes the Vikings. Yeah, dude, I don't blame them. They're they're freaking beautiful and they can act. So bring it on. Mm-hmm. And they got cool accents which sound way cooler than the way I speak. So I'm I'm all for it, dude. And if he continues to this uh, trend. Just keep on doing it, uh, Villeneuve. You are doing you're doing things right here. So, mm-hmm. if you were to describe the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen as two fictional characters, which two fictional characters would they be? So I'm going to go with one that he influenced clearly, and one that I believe influenced him. Okay. Um, the first one, Jabba the Hutt. Um, okay. Is clearly a Baron Harkonnen. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, archetype, copycat, whatever you want to call it. He's clearly influenced the the idea of this sort of big, fat, sloppy, um, uh, you know, power broker. Obviously, on a much yep. smaller scale. Much smaller scale. He doesn't own an entire planet um, and an entire civilization. But like the the all the traits are right there for you. This big, fat piece of shit that's really into excess <laughs> of all kinds, right? Right. And then the character that I think that that at least somewhat informed uh, uh, this Herbert's interpretation of Harkonnen, um, Colonel Kurtz from Heart of Darkness, a.k.a. Apocalypse Now. Yeah, dude, I'm sure you've seen the side-by-side shots of um, the Baron, like, you know, and Marlon Brando and stuff like that on the internet. And they even have, like, these little homages, like, of him wiping his head and just everything, like, the whole head-hanging type thing really tight on the face type shot and stuff. And I mean, not to mention like he kind of looks a lot like Brando did at that time period when he showed up all overweight. Right. I think, yeah, no. And I think this performance in particular, I think is not, I think I know it is, but I mean, I think the character from the book is based off of somewhat of the, uh, it's not Colonel Kurtz in the book. I can't remember the, the, his name in the book. Um, But um, you know, that book predates that book predates Doom by like 60 years. Um, mm-hmm. I believe maybe even longer. Um, like I really feel like that is an archetype that Herbert took with him, and that was like in mind when he was writing, writing the character of uh, of, Har- of Baron Harkonnen. Oh yeah, I I could totally, I could definitely see that for sure and stuff like yeah. I mean that's I I really like I even thought for a second like when I first like I didn't I saw some of these side by sides before I saw the movie. So like, I, I didn't see it the first day that it came out. It took me a little bit of time and I was just like, Oh God, they're really, this is just another one of these fucking things. And then I get in there and I'm like, Oh no, no, no. These, these were actually right. This is one because sometimes when it comes to these like homages and stuff, sometimes I think people are reaching really, really far in terms of like these homages to cinema and stuff yeah. like that. And, and like a lot of the times when I see them, they're in these various slideshows of stuff on Instagram that are posted by various like film centric Instagram mm-hmm. um, accounts and everything. And they, this one I thought was like, I was like, okay, like, you know, with nothing, no evidence to stand on. I was like, all right, you guys maybe might be reaching too far. But then when I get in there and I see like the entire performance and stuff, I think that they hit this like right on the head and everything like that. And I mean, they got, and you make a good thing with the Jabba the Hutt comparison and him eating and stuff like that. And that just like, 
disgusting scene of him like just stuffing his face and mm-hmm. everything and him even needing this like you know apparatus of sorts to fly himself around because he is so big it's just like that's that is job of the hut right mm-hmm. there and i guarantee you that if the technology or the budget existed for it at that time that might have been something that they were tossing around the idea room it was like hey what if job flew you know, yeah exactly like exactly <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And like, I think that your your comparisons there are 100% on the money. And I went a little bit more modern with mine. Mine is a one of them is a fairly obvious one. And it's Tywin Lannister. Like, oh, yeah, just clearly the mm-hmm. guy, the rich guy, and even the way that the um, the Harkonnens and the, the Lannisters do have some parallels in terms of like money, their desire for power. This, you know, desire to like thwomp out another rival house. Plus, and everything. plus they're the you could you could look at the Harkonnens as the power brokers behind, you know, behind the Empire, like they're, yes. you know, like in you know in, in Game of Thrones, the Lannisters are the money behind mm-hmm. behind um, Westeros, and in this case, the the Harkonnens are also the money and the the power behind the Galactic Empire or the Known Empire, I think they call it. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah. you bet, dude. And they had they just the whole thing with um them accumulating all this money via the spice trade and stuff. Like it's just a lot of parallels that run to um the Lannisters, and I kind of imagined uh, Hart Baron as um a dirtier version of the kingpin played by Vincent D'Onofrio in the Daredevil mm. series, like Wilson Fisk, mm-hmm. because it is once again it's like um it's this similar in the, the sense of Tyler Lannister, like there are definitely goals. There are definitely motivations. He does have this kind of like, I guess like there are these, um, where job of the hut is sloppy. Wilson Fisk is clean. You know, like he wears the suits. Job of the hut is just this naked fucking worm. The Baron wears like a sheet over him and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And I see like the way that they, I guess kind of, um, act and even sometimes of the way that they speak, I kind of just see parallelisms there, especially because um, D'Onofrio's kingpin wasn't necessarily like the smoothest talker in the world. He was like a little bit more like um, not not rugged or stuttering, but there was definitely like a little bit of simplicity in the way that he spoke. And I see that also with um, uh, Stella Skarsgård as the Baron. Yes. Yeah. The Like even in the scenes where the Baron is does get um you know more dialogue it's really to the point it's very blunt Mm -hmm. he doesn't it's not flower he's not a villain um he's not like a more modern villain in that like he has like these flowery speeches and where he's you know he gets to like really show off um you you know like you know what i'm saying right like how how a lot of villains um, how a marvel villain gets to show off in a marvel movie it's right not like that at all yeah, no, it's the exact opposite. Like I was thinking of like um, in lines of like Tarantino villains that are very colorful and they're yeah. very like expressive and stuff, have a lot to say. This was like the exact opposite of that. And I felt that um, the way that they went with this character, number one, it, it fits the mold of everything that's going around. Like I feel that like, you know, him being the exact opposite of everything that we see on the um, on the side of the protagonists. Like they hit, they hit him up very, very well in, in that regard. And, um, the way that they make him act and look and everything like that is also such a contrast to everything else too, that it almost, it seems to almost make sense in this weird, like dramatic sort of way 
that this very, very intelligent house that had the best army in the galaxy would fall to like the fat, evil, rich people. You mm-hmm. know, it just seems like there's some kind of like dramatic poetry in there that it's... they they had the one thing that could beat the House Artreides, which is the money and the means to hire these people. It's the it's the Lannisters versus the Starks, the loyalty and duty versus uh, the money and and the means. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly, and it's that whole kind of you know age old story model and kind of theme not not the theme but a theme of like um you know of honor versus corruption and stuff like that yep exactly definitely dude so who out of um house harkonnen is the uh, standout character to you and why i mean it's the baron like for sure for again for very similar reasons like mm-hmm. you know just one because stellan star when was the last time stellan skarsgård put out like a bad performance um it's probably been uh, like decades <laughs> since he did that. Yeah. I, can't Sorry, even tell you the last. Can't even tell you the last one. I mean, legitimately, he's such a great actor. But like, even though we kind of talk about how he's not, he's not really like the the type of villain that we've grown accustomed to in a lot of movies. It it serves as such a great juxtaposition for like what we're seeing out of the protagonist, like you just said. And so, like when we do get these moments with him killing people or you know levitating like we see him in this like his disgusting body like in the steam or like in the mud bath like all of it just sort of like you 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 can't take your eyes off of this character like you just can't he he is just a fantastic character i was really i you know i was going into it expecting a little bit more of dave batista and you know but Mm -hmm. like obviously we we didn't get that and i'm totally fine with that knowing that we're going to get a lot more of him in the second movie yeah, like, I really, like, you got that with my ex- expectations of Dave Batista. I expected a little bit more. I didn't really know what I expected, though. Like, you know, because in Blade Runner 2049, like, once once you, you know, follow the, the Gosling speeder down to the farm and you see just, him. Yeah, just one scene. It's cl- yeah, it's clearly obvious that he's going to be in there for one scene. And you know something? It totally fucking it, it totally works. Like mm-hmm. that character worked in the construct of Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Mm-hmm. Now this one, like being that I read the book and kind of kind of know like what happens and everything, um, I was wondering how far they would get with him. And I I'm not going to like I don't want to say that like I was underwhelmed because like once I look back on everything, like as I'm leaving the theater, I'm like, yes, this, this totally makes sense. But I guess like when I was in the moment, I kind of thought that we were going to get a little bit more. Cause I, he's maybe got like 12 lines of dialogue through the whole I, that's thing. It, yeah. But, um, but he's got a really cool presence and what we will get in the future, I think is going to make up for any kind of like, Oh dude, like just get over the fact he wasn't in it as long as you mm-hmm. thought he was going to be type stuff on my end. Mm-hmm. And um, if there's one thing that I'm going to say, like you're right. The, the Baron is definitely the, the hands down standout character out of that family. You literally can't take your eyes off him. I actually wanted more of him too. Yeah. yeah. Um, like I could have used 10 to 15 minutes more of him easily. I don't know how or where, but I just wanted him that much more. But one thing that I got to say, I was really surprised um, who made it into this movie. He did a really good job with the small role that he was given. And I know I'm going to butcher the hell out of this guy's name. It's uh, David Dasmalchian. David Dasmalchian. Yes. Dasmalchian. Dasmalchian. I'm glad you're, I wanted to talk about him if you weren't going to, so go ahead. Yeah. I, I loved his little, like, 
number one, his whole aura, the way he looked and everything, I loved it. I thought it was great. Mm -hmm. Just being this kind of like, um, you know, advisor type character and stuff, somebody of an elevated intelligence than everybody else. And he also is like somewhat, somewhat like a voice of reason and everything. Like, even though, you know, it's, he doesn't stop anybody from doing anything bad. I guess right. it makes it like less horrible than it could have been. Right. Especially because he was questioning, you know, like, Hey Baron, like, you know, just, in, you know, if you promise something to the Bene Gesserit, like, you know, you better make sure you follow through with it. And right. You just kind of worried about what would happen to them as a result of like lying to such a powerful body. And, um, I knew he was going to be in the movie. Like I, I didn't, really figure to what degree and everything like that. But um, for what he was in the movie, I, I really liked it. Um, I'm kind of liking this persona that this actor is developing with this, you know, not in it too much, not having like such a, not a lot of lines, not a lot of crazy monologues, but just being in the movie and being effective and being good. Like the way he was in the suicide squad. Yeah. I'm, I'm like really happy for an actor like David Desmalchian who Mm -hmm. is he is an a1 character actor like yep that's exactly what he is and he's not trying to do anything more than to do what a good character actor does and that's take your role figure out you know figure out like figure out how you you know figure out the quirks figure out the little the personality things that like need to show up in a very short period of time and do them well and he's done that well like in especially more recently but like he has a long list of like he has like a very long list of credits where he's he really like hits his roles out of the park in all of them. Um, he going back like more recently, like he's in he is the Murdoch character in the MacGyver reboot. Um, I don't know if you remember the original MacGyver, but like his his longtime nemesis was Murdoch, and yeah. David Dismalchian is the Murdoch in the current MacGyver, and so he just kind of shows up for like a couple episodes every season. Does mm-hmm. does a lot of villainous preening and then like he's gone and like he's perfect in it, like he is he's one of those character actors. I'm glad that is like getting his his sort of like you know not that he like they need recognition necessarily, but like that he's his he had this one of the standout parts in the Suicide Squad. He is I'm, I'm glad to see him in like a legitimate you know big time big budget like capital M movie playing a very important character. Like David Esmolchin is just one of those people that like deserves it. Yeah, exactly, dude. Like, I have a tendency of rooting for these character actors often, and and I do it a lot. And, like, this is a guy that, I, I don't know, man, like, it's going to sound really stupid, but, like, in some ways I see certain elements of myself in this guy, like, whether it be, like, he might be a streaming ray and beacon of masculinity and confidence on the outside, but there's some, like, nervous quirks and, like, kind of the way he talks that, like, I see in myself, I guess. And this is just, it's something that, like, you know, this dude, like, we've kind of seen him around for a while, and the fact that he's landed really recognizable um, supporting roles in two movies released by Warner brothers that came out in the same summer. It's, it's just really cool. Like it mm-hmm. only happens every now and then, like, I mean, stuff like this, it happens, you know, like somebody goes from like a, a hot TV show uh, to a, to a role of some kind of recognition, you know, um, something like that. But this is just like another one of those times where a cool character actor is having his moment in the sun. Yep, exactly, exactly. He's he's it's the kind of like years past we would have seen him uh this kind of actor having a moment. We would have seen him in like being one of the ensemble like in Saving Private Ryan or something, playing like a yeah. playing a key part. 
Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, that's a good that's a good example for sure. Definitely. Cool, man. Yeah, I was like I had he was one of somebody out there that I definitely felt was worthy of the discussion. So I'm glad mm-hmm. we got to get that get that into this um, section about the Harkonnens as we transition into the Fremen now. And this question I want to I'm going to ask you um, and then I, once you answer, I got some stuff I just kind of wanted to say about it. But do you think that we spent too much, too little or the appropriate amount of time with the Fremen? I, I really think it's the appropriate amount of time. Um, and I say that because we, for a couple of reasons, I think mo- mostly because we are, you know, as we're getting introduced to the Fremen through the film books in the beginning and, you know, some of the, you know, the Duncan Idaho's, you know, uh, scouting reports um, to, to Leto and then like to the other, um, to the other uh, Atreides soldiers. Um, we're kind of already like getting this sort of like, they're not what you expect. They're very, they're, they're not what you expect. And they're, but at the same time, they're as mystical and mysterious as you expect. And so like, if we would have spent any more time with them, it would have demystified them a little bit, but sort of the way that we get, you know, the, the way that we're introduced to them, you know, we meet Javier Bardem still for what, like two scenes, I think early on one scene, yep. no, just one scene early on. Um, like that's enough to, for where the story's going. And then we wrap up with that final scene, um, you know, the uh, the battle to the death, you know, the, the life for a life uh, for for Paul to, you know, gain entrance into the to this uh, Fremen. What are they called? Siege? The sieges are the area. The, the, the houses. Yeah. But, the you know, the gang, the, the clan, yeah. whatever. Right. Um, yeah. That sort of like is that sort of is a good way to end it as like this sort of like. Now, you know, the part of the story where we're really going to get into the Fremen, that's coming. But we just, we don't want to show our hand too much on this because the idea of these people is, again, no one knows anything about them on purpose. Right. Exactly. I agree with you in the appropriate amount of time. I I think what you're saying about the mystery element, um, that plays a lot into my answer and my logic for going with the appropriate amount of time. And like... The way that they end everything with um, the person, you kind of see them riding the uh, the sandworm and stuff, and Paul says desert power, mm-hmm. thus reinforcing the um, the speech that Oscar Isaac gave him in the beginning of the movie. Yep. Like the mystery element of these people being these badass warriors. Well, like, guess what? You're not going to have much for movies two and three if we see how badass they are in their its entirety in the first fucking movie and stuff. <laughs> you know, like, there's going to be nothing twist-wise or spectacle-wise that is going to have the same weight if they would have given us everything in the, the first movie mm-hmm. and stuff. And I think that, um, you know, just with knowing what we know about the story and everything like that from myself with the book and with you from your readings and from seeing the 1984 Dune. Um, like I feel that they cut everything off at the appropriate time. Like there would have just been, it would have made like the, the last couple of the last installment or whatever, like whenever the Harkonnens fall, it would have made that a lot um, less dramatic and stuff. If we knew they were just outright badasses, could ride worms, they are much better soldiers. Like, hey, by the way, there are like five million of them living underneath the planet. So they needed to give us some some type of mystery and not answer all the questions. Um, you know, they needed to give us a little bit of something to wonder about as we continue on through this journey and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I ask about the time, it's um, 
as I was on Twitter and online through the um, the first couple of days of Dune's release, there was all this uproar about Zendaya not being in it all that much. And I was just like, number one, um, this is supposed to be a, a, chapter one of a much larger story. <laughs> right. And number two, like, what do you want her to do? Do you want her to have Paul ba- Paul's baby in the first movie? Like, I mean, do you want her, her and Paul to meet in the, uh, the falling action of the film? And then um, she's pregnant by the end of the movie? Like, I mean, how much of an ABC TV show do you want this movie to be? So, like, I don't... There's somewhere in there, I think, like, I, I'm not going to say that the movie was mismarketed, like, because, like, I, I really didn't think she was going to be in it all that much from the beginning. Like, I, I, she's a star, so she should have top billing on the movie. But, like, I don't really understand, like, what some of these people, like, wanted, you know? And if you were talking about in terms of, like, a, a strong female presence to, to you know, to, to complement Timothy Chalamet... Well, you had that throughout the movie with Jessica. So there was no, yeah. Yeah. there was, there was no absence of any, like, um, it wasn't like an all guys, all dicks all the time thing is what I'm trying to say here. So I just feel that there's some of these people who view the movie differently or maybe have somewhat of a negative opinion about the movie because their expectations for Zendaya's role were not met. I feel is a little bit unfair. And I think that these people are really selling themselves short of what's going to be number one, what was a phenomenal experience while watching this movie, but number two, it's going to be a phenomenal experience as we get to experience the story farther. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And here's what you're hitting on is that Zendaya is a, is a fucking superstar, like legitimate superstar. And the Zendaya fans are not happy about that. That's right. That's what the static comes from. That like, oh, like if Zendaya's in something, that she, then she should be the focus and whatever the fuck she's in. Like, nope. Um, uh, uh, you, and you know what? I, I guarantee you, I guarantee you um, that one, this wasn't like one of those roles, I, at least I doubt it, where Vill, uh, Villeneuve was just like, well, this is Den- Zendaya's to lose. It wasn't. Can, I can almost guarantee you, like, she's not the only actress that was up for this part. And right. because she is, and I think she's a good actress, on her, especially on, on her way to becoming, like, a really good actress, um, I think she saw the role and was like, okay, like, uh, this is perfect. Like, this is, this, is, this, this is one of those star-making roles, even though I'm not in it much to begin with, this is a star-making role if I play it right. Like, and not, not just star-making, because, again, she's a superstar, but, like, this is one of those roles that like legitimizes you. You're not a Disney kid anymore. You're not a child actor anymore. You're an actor. And right. if she and, and I, I have no reason so far to think that she won't hit the, you know, hit uh, the part of Chani out of the park for the for part two. Um, if she hits it out of the park, then like you, we we can shed the sort of Disney star, and now she's just a star. Yeah, exactly, dude. She'll be a legitimate star, and with like all legitimate stars there is some type of big fucking movie or franchise that they are all attached to. Like Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio, Mr. I'm only working with Scorsese and A-list directors. Well, yeah, he worked with an A-list director named James Cameron that made the most popular movie of all time until the Marvel Cinematic Universe was formed. Right. So like there's always like the, um, I'm trying to like, there's really like, I'm trying to, I'm struggling for a comparison right now because like a lot of people are in Marvel movies, but like the idea of the, um, 
the star, but they only do like crazy, awesome projects with the greatest, hottest directors around. Like those people may have that lifestyle for a short period of time, but believe me, at some point in time, everybody is going to want to jump onto like a major motion picture, whether it's for your financial reasons, you're checking a box in your career or hell, if it just seems like a character you want to play, everybody goes down that road. So there's no reason for, um, anybody to think that like um, Zendaya is going to be less of an actor because she decided to opt in a big franchise. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that something like this, and I know she's in, she's in the Spider-Man movies Mm -hmm. too, but with something like this, I feel she could be more of a, more of a face, more of a presence than just as, you know, Peter Parker's girlfriend in the the new Spider-Man movies. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think maybe more modern comparison would be, uh, Zoe Kravitz being just like one of the wives in Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, I mean, yes. yeah. you know, she's not even not even like the featured wife. <laughs> like so, right? Yeah. Um, and and she's well on her way to becoming a star. Like well on her way to becoming a star. Oh yeah, I remember, dude. I remember when she was on Californication, like when she was just starting to like dabble into acting and stuff a little bit. You know, when we still knew her as. Lenny Kravitz's daughter who is trying to act. Well, now she's like, she's going to be Catwoman and stuff. Like Joey Kravitz, Zoe Kravitz is going to stand on her own, um, on her own name in time and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And there may be a point in time where her popularity eclipses um, that of the person who wrote, are you going to go my way? You never know. That, yeah. You never know. Never know. <laughs> so, all right. So out of the, uh, the Fremen, which one um, to you is the standout character and why? I got to go with Stilgar. Um, again, you know, getting the most the most screen time of, of any of the Fremen besides um, uh, Dr. Kynes. Um, yeah. Stilgar gets the most screen time. But, like, what a great introduction. Just to, like, walk up to, you know, essentially a, a king and then, like, spit right in front of him. And, like, <laughs> I know. Like, and, you know, and that's, like, the proper greeting. Like, it was fucking great. Like, the, the introduction yeah. to his character and, and thus the introduction to the Fremen was like pretty fantastic. So I had to go with Stilgar with this one. Yeah, this was definitely an easy one um, for me too. Like I, I love this take on the character. Like it was funny. And like, I, for some reason, like I happen to think Javier Bardem, like you get a couple drinks in this guy might be very, very similar to the way Stilgar is in the movie, just in mm-hmm. terms of his attitude and mannerisms and everything. And I loved his introduction scene, you know, you're going up and spitting and it's like, Hey, by the way, that is a welcome custom here mm-hmm. on this planet. Cause you're giving us your moisture. Yeah. <laughs> There's something like comically beautiful about that and stuff. And like, I, I look forward to what he is going to be in the future because after reading the books, like his role is just so much larger than even in like the David Lynch movie and everything. And his relationship with Paul becomes very special. So I'm really looking forward to what the future brings with us. Still. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, totally agree. And again, it's man, like just everywhere you look in this movie, like great actors everywhere. Um, yeah, just like letting, can't wait for Javier Bardem to be able to take on a role and just like completely own it because he does everything that he's in. Yeah, dude, it's amazing. Like I haven't, you know, I'll be honest with you. Like when I say that I've seen stuff that he's been in, but it's been very, very limited, you know, like, I mean, just the three movies just being no country, a skyfall and then Dune and he's owned every single role that I've seen him play at. And he does such a great job of it and those three roles are just like 
I don't think anybody else could do this the way that he did it. Definitely, definitely for not for no country. No one else has that role. And even like the, the Bond villain in Skyfall, I don't see a lot of people being able to knock that out of the park the way no, he did either. No, this this whole movie, I don't I don't want I won't get I won't sidetrack us too much. Like this whole movie is filled with, um, with movie stars. I mean, I mean, obviously these people are all famous, but I mean, like, you can't mm-hmm. take your eyes off of Stellan Skarsgård. You can't take your eyes off of Javier Bardem. You can't take your eyes off Rebecca Ferguson. You can't take your fucking eyes off of Jason Momoa. You can't take your fucking eyes off of Dave Bautista. Like, it's filled with people that just like, like on their own could pilot any movie that you give them, and right. it's just filled with these people. And they're all in one movie yeah. and all kicking ass in that one movie. It just it's so special when stuff like this comes together and everything like that, you know, and there's so such a really good balance of star power too. like even for Chalamet, um, Oscar Isaac, like, to, you know, and bro, like all these people like that you see in the beginning, they for some reason it feels like um there's not there's not a character in the movie where I'm just like God are we dealing are we still with this guy like, mm-hmm. can we just move on to something else like I want to see everybody more of them more sides of them more situations with them and it's very rare that a movie comes along where I could say that yeah yes absolutely very well said definitely dude so who's your wild card standout character well I, I'm gonna go since we talked about him before it's Gurney Halleck um, played by the great Josh Brolin. And to me, this, again, this is like a, I know that this is like a, this sort of gruff military character, you know, it's an archetype in a lot of movies and a lot of books, TV shows, whatever. So it's, like I said, it's more of a one note type of character, but it's great to have a really great actor like Josh Brolin playing that one note. But it also, it really feels like, it really feels like he saw the the original Dune, which I'm sure he did. Um, and he went, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring my big Stewart energy to this and I'm going to Patrick Stewart all over the fucking place. Cause this, this feels like, this feels like a, almost like an homage to what Patrick Stewart was doing in the first movie. Dude, I got, dude, I got you for sure. Dude, he brings that fucking intensity to with this whole thing. And I, um, I could see like, a, you know, some Patrick Stewart and stuff like that in him, but I just see it being cranked up like through the, through the fucking roof, you know? Yes, I agree, but here's and here's here's sort of where I'm going with this. So this was three years before Stewart would um, take on the role of of uh, Captain Picard, and what over the years as as uh, Patrick Stewart's gotten older, what is he like eighty now, eighty one, something like that? Um, we we see him very differently. But if you go back and watch those like early episodes of Star Trek that he's in, dude, he is a fucking commanding presence, like a very commanding presence. And it's it's very different from like kind of the old gentle Patrick Stewart that we know now. Mm-hmm. Um, Patrick Stewart in his forties was would have like he would have gone down to the bar with you and like just drank all night with you and then punched you in the face at the end of the night. <laughs> yeah, like I I haven't seen the like the earlier stuff isn't coming to my mind. Unfortunately, like the first thing that comes to my mind with Picard is like this kind of comical Picard that they do in the movies and stuff where, yeah, he does have like, he's a commander, but at the same time, like, you know, there's like a dancing scene and stuff where mm-hmm. they're, they're really trying to like humor, play the humor out. But, um, knowing what I do know about Patrick Stewart, I could definitely see him being the man in some of these early Star Trek stuff. I mean, he, I mean, not only that, like look at like his early, even while he was doing, um, even while he was doing Star Trek, like before, like, before X-Men, basically, before he takes becomes Professor X, 
Um, looking at like a lot of his roles, he's a villain in a lot of movies because he just has that like intensity, that energy, and it just it sort of just felt like it just felt to me like Roland was just like you know what love what Patrick Stewart's doing with this role. I'm just going to continue it. We're we're just going <laughs> to we're just going to be if he's at a ten, then I'm going to be at an eleven because I love that energy. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good, that's really fucking good, dude, for sure. Like, I lo- I love this character. I've said it before, and I think Josh Brolin did a really great job with it. Looking forward to seeing him uh, come back in whatever whatever chapter they bring him back in. Mm. And for me, I went um, I went with Jason Momoa. I got to tell you, even without the beard, he's fucking awesome. Like when this guy is just such, I, I love this guy. Like I'm a big time fan of his and stuff. Like he's a movie star. Like a, he is a movie yeah. star. That is a bona fide fucking movie star. Like almost in the way that like Tom Cruise is a movie star, like where it's just this it's just this really cool fucking dude that you just want to hang out with and stuff, you know? Like that is that is just Jason Momoa to me, man. And like I I haven't seen him without the beard with the exception of some of these throwback photos to like his Baywatch days and like younger Jason Momoa. And like he even looks like a badass without the fucking beard. <laughs> like it's just unfair. Oh dude, um I, th- I can't. I think he goes beard, beardless, and with beard in Stargate Atlantis, and okay. that's like the. I think that's like his first real like acting gig, and okay. he's not a good actor at the, like at that point in time, like at all. But like even then, you're like, you know, and obviously part of it has to do with like seeing Stargate Atlantis like eleven years after like it first aired. Um, that you know that helps like reframe things for me after seeing Momoa as. Uh, Cal Drogo, but like even in like even like his first scenes in Stargate Atlantis, you're just kind of like, yeah, this guy's even if he's not like he's got something like there's something here. Mm-hmm. Not sure what it is yet, but there's something here. Yeah, dude, and you see him, and then like when you see him off camera, and like I've seen this video where um, somebody makes him this awesome custom bass guitar, and he just picks it up and starts wailing the Chili Peppers higher ground. I'm like, this is just a, I'm not worthy. Like I, I hope we never meet because I'm just, I'm afraid it's just going to be one of those things where I just do get down on the knees and do the I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy thing and stuff. <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be really embarrassing for me. And he's a. Uh, he's somebody that um number one with me being such a game of thrones fan and stuff like i I like him and number two like i'm i'm happy to see that he's still around and he's bigger than he's ever been yeah yeah exactly um he's got like in sorry in sergey atlantis as ronan dex um he's got he's got some big dreadlocks and like it's the beard is it's like a close it's more of a close trim goatee Mm -hmm. kind of thing happening Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And so beard, no beard. It could be a face paint, whatever it is. He's going to be the fucking, he's going to be a boss mm-hmm. no matter what, just straight up boss right yep. there. So. Yep. <laughs> All right, dude. So let's move into the effects. And I am really excited to ask you this question. Um, so Blade, so Dune obviously follows Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049, which came out in 2017. So have you noticed any similarities in either the settings, vehicles, or effects between these two movies? Well, let's go back even farther, go back to Arrival. Um, let's put all three of those movies together. Uh, mm-hmm. Denis Villeneuve has stated that the movements of a lot of the vehicles and ships and things were inspired by the descriptions in Dune. Okay. So very yes, nice. There okay. is a similarity because he made them that way. 
Okay, I gotcha. Okay, I didn't know. Like, I it's been a while since I've seen Arrival, and I, the last time I watched it, I was on flying on a plane to Europe. So, uh, <laughs> believe me, it was not the best conditions for me to watch that movie. I didn't know about that interview too. Like, I I could kind of see that stuff for sure. And like for me, what I put down with this is, um, I noticed that um, okay, for between Blade Runner and Dune, the settings are both in like, I guess what would be the equivalent of a major population center and stuff and outside of this population center you don't have much and like with um los angeles 2049 being the mega city and arrakis being this you know it looks something almost like an ancient kind of city but with like um with like modern kind of tech you know like the metals and the kind of technology and everything and i also noticed that um in the center of each one of these cities is a large pyramid-like building that doesn't have the top. It's almost like he converted the, um, the what is it, the, not Tyrell, it's the, um, Jared Leto's character, Xander or something or other, the, whatever the, the company is in Blade Runner. It's almost like they took the shell for the miniature and inserted that into Arrakis, and that was like the, the palace and everything. So I noticed that there was like a little bit of a similarity there. And... Um, when it comes to his take on some of these designs for the future, like I notice, and I really respect that he doesn't go flashy. Like everything seems to be like relatively realistic in terms of the way some of these vehicles and stuff like that look. And like, I know like Blade Runner, like the Los Angeles setting, one might describe it as flashy. I would prefer to use the term loud, which just like associates with like just a lot of different things going on and stuff. But there was no, like, unnecessary flash. Like, no, like, hey, we got the budget for this. Let's just, like, make something look completely, like, ridiculous and almost too gaudy for its own good. So he seems to have, like, some – maybe he's, like, grounded in a certain level of realism when it comes to how he designs some of these vehicles and settings and stuff like that. Because I feel that – other directors, um, given like the, the same opportunity, might opt to make things a little like too flashy for their own good, whether it's uh, uses of colors that are in a really weird way or even just like shapes of vehicles, extra unnecessary lighting or lights on the vehicles. Like that's kind of like what I see from other directors, but I don't necessarily see it with him. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Um... I mean, no, I mean, you're right. And again, if you go back to Arrival, what what stands out to you about the spaceships? Oh, my God. Um, Nothing. It's like a square or something. It's like a floating They're just big triangular stones. Yeah, that's right. There's no flash to them at all. No, nothing. You just walk up inside of them and then, like, the the aliens are, like, behind a big misty screen. Like, there's nothing... There's nothing, like, remarkable about them. Um, And... I, I like, yeah, like I, there is, there's more of a practicality present in, you know, in these like giant spaceships and things and these giant, you know, these like floating cars and shit, um, in something like, in something like Westworld where Westworld has gone for its third season, there's a lot of flash and I think it's, and I think it's appropriate for like what it is. Like it's it, in, in the 2060s or 2080s or whatever, I think it's 2080s. In the 2080s of Westworld, like, everyone's, like, really, for the most part, everyone's, like, really well off. So things would look flashy and and great. When you think about, when you think about uh, the setting for Blade Runner 2049, 
uh, people are not well off in Los Angeles. It's like right. they are surviving the end of a nuclear holocaust and all the wealthy people have already moved off of Earth. So all the poor people are left behind. Um, mm-hmm. So the equipment, every you know, the, the buildings, the equipment, everything they have behind left behind is going to be cheaper and more practical. If you are, yes. in, realistically speaking, if you want to put any realism into space travel, you're going to move on things and use, bring things with you that are just practical. That makes sense to that you can travel over like you know light years across space. You wouldn't bring anything that's like terribly flashy because it wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't be practical to use in space. Um, mm-hmm. And again, if it just that goes to the aliens in Arrival. If they don't, they don't need all of these creature comforts that we would need. They only need what they need. So if all they need is this floating stone monolith with um, you know a divider between us and them, that's all they're going to bring. So there's right. there's a very like actual realistic maybe not maybe realistic isn't like the exact best way to put it but there's a an element of practicality that mm-hmm. he carries through with all the designs and stuff. Yeah, d- definitely, dude. I, I think it's very very noticeable, and the thing that makes it so noticeable to me is that it's not flashy. That it is the it's the exact inverse of like every single thing that I've seen science fiction wise throughout my entire life. You know, like there's. There, I mean, I know that there are definitely like exceptions to the rule in terms of like the way things look. But if we're talking about another thing that would differentiate Dune from Star Wars, it's like I remember seeing the Phantom Menace and there's this scene where Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are riding in an underground submarine. And then behind them, a small fish gets eaten by a bigger fish. The bigger fish gets eaten by a bigger fish. And that fish gets eaten by an even bigger fish. And like there's none of that show there. You know, there's none of that crap that's just like for the hell of it. And just because we could do it, everything seems to be like a, um, like how we talked about with um, our episode on Canada, where like you use everything that's given to you and stuff. And like, you don't have these kind of unnecessary things, whether it's in the plot or in this case for what we're talking about Mm -hmm. visually and with the effects and stuff. So what you're saying is we should get all movies to Canadian directors. Believe me, if they, I'm fine if, with if it. they're fine like, with that idea. If, if they're like Villeneuve, then fucking more power to it. Let's make more of this stuff happen because stuff like this to me, like when, you know, you and I were not, you know, like we're not necessarily like these, um, we didn't go to school and put 40 years of our lives to critically studying film, but like you, you and I watched a bunch of movies, you and I've been around the block in certain genres and stuff. And like, I guess as I get older, these real bits of flair and these pieces of flash are things that I'm not as excited about as I once was, because I I guess maybe like, um, it's not to say that I don't have an imagination, but I don't think that my imagination calls for that kind of stuff anymore. Yeah. Yes. I would, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. I, I would, I would put it like, I like it when the flash is needed and warranted when like, there's a moment where like a little bit goes a long way. Whereas when a movie is coded in it, it's just like, it's like, oh, okay, gotcha. You have a lot of money and you're going to show off how much money you have. Okay. Right. Fine. Right. It's like, okay, so you guys maybe could have paid your production staff a little bit more instead of having this elaborate senseless CGI sequence in it. But Hey, whatever. It's up to you guys. You know, I'm not the one, right. with the, I'm like, not the one cutting the checks here. <laughs> right. Like just thinking about, you know, and just to keep it with uh, Villeneuve here, um, like in, in Blade Runner, probably that the flashiest sort of thing that we get is the giant hologram of joy. Mm-hmm. Like that's probably the flashiest thing, right? Yeah, that's right. That's flashy, but 
more about the atmosphere than it is, hey, we got $20 million. Yes. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Like, exactly. So I think like what they were going for is like a um, an evolution of some of the stuff that we saw in the previous Blade Runner with the advertisements and everything. So, yes, flashy, but totally fucking warranted. And I would not take that scene out of that movie at all. I loved it. I thought no, it was, it was awesome. Cool. So, awesome. Like, so like that is like that is one of those times where like flash is used for good. If it was like um, George Lucas or Joel Schumacher directing Blade Runner 2049. Oh, yeah, I mean, that hologram would come down and maybe they'd dance. He'd probably tell jokes or the whole, something like that. The whole movie would have been neon soaked like that. Yeah, ex- exactly. So Villeneuve just seems to be one of these dudes, like these hyper-intelligent minds in terms of um, displaying a visual like story that, you know, maybe he's moved beyond it, that kind of stuff too, you know, in terms of like just putting it out there for fuck's sake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, okay. Um, next one... Um, I just want to get your thoughts on this. Like if, if Villeneuve had like a specific signature to his films, what do you think it is? I, I really do think there is a very specific signature. And I, this kind of really makes me want to go back and watch his like early French Canadian stuff just to mm-hmm. see if it's present there too. Um, especially since he, those movies did not have the budgets that he's working with now. And that's the ability to make the big feel big without it being overwhelming. Meaning okay. like, when we're when you're sitting there and like you're watching like you know one of the first big scenes in uh, in Dune, and like what I mean by big scene like where there's a lot going on there's a lot of there's a lot of sets there's a lot of actors there's a lot of whatever happening when the um, the herald for the empire for the emperor comes to task House Atreides with um, taking over uh, taking over Arrakis um, or you know overseeing spice on Arrakis. You have all the soldiers from House of Trades lined up in their ceremonial uniforms. You have like mm-hmm. the big welcoming committee. You have this very ornate looking. That's one of the times where the Flash comes in. Is this whole scene? You have this ornate looking ship that touches down in a very, um, in a way that like it almost it seems beyond not just like technologically advanced, almost supernatural. The way like these ships land, and it it all feels very very big, but not in a way that is like, not in a way that like it overwhelms or overpowers your senses. Like it just feels almost, almost like you're sitting there in an audience watching everything kind of unfold. Like if, if as if you were in person, like it, it's that big, but not bigger than that. Oh yes. Okay. I, I get what you're saying here. And for that specific scene, yes, you did. Like you felt like you were in that. That was, a, that was a large scale scene. You know, it's not two people talking in a room, but it wasn't like too overwhelming in the sense like what I feel the um, uh, take some of the big like, um, you know, like in Avengers Infinity War, when the good guys are getting ready to meet that like faceless army and everything like that in Wakanda. And it's, you know, just like this massive kind of massive kind of battle that almost feels like too big for yes. the screen. Yeah. Like you really like you felt um, grounded in what you were watching for the scale for this, for the scale of the the shots and the production and the, the scene itself, it, it, with Dune and everything. Yeah, there's for whatever reason, there's a way you can sort of um, you can like I, I I feel like everything is everything literally felt size appropriate because like I could see it scaled next to actual human beings, right? That was like one thing. Um, yeah. When you kind of when you brought up like a, a good one is like that battle in Wakanda uh, from Avengers, which is great. Like I actually really enjoyed it. Um, but there's so much going on and we're kind of 
were pulled from one part of the battle to the next part of the battle to the next part of the battle. Like, there's a lot going on. In this scene, we're just sitting with what's going on in front of us. Like, there's you're not being pulled everywhere. You're seeing the herald come down and you know, like make his you know make his grand entrance or whatever. Mm-hmm. You're 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 getting the wide shot of of Leto Leto giving the you know the um, the I guess like the oath of fealty or whatever to him. And you know, mm-hmm. like, but like you're there and present for all of it. You don't get pulled away from from scene to scene. You know, you don't need to go anywhere yeah. for it. You're right there with it. Yeah, there's you know when you when you say that, like I was just thinking about this. There's no like um, cutaways to like the rows of the soldiers just to kind of like sh- show everybody like, hey, my God, this thing is huge. You know, the you almost just get like a couple of sh- a couple like establishing shots, and then from there you're in the discussion. You know, they don't they don't cut away from that to distract you with the, the the grandeur of what's going on you're only getting cut away to various characters like reactions and stuff like that so he really keeps you in that big moment he keeps you focused yes and even um and even when we do get some of like the 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 truly like big stuff like the the spacing guilds um highliner that huge ship that's up in the sky in arrakis we see in two different occasions um mm-hmm. like even that the way that it's sort of framed, like the way it's sort of framed almost like a celestial object gives you both like an appreciation for the size of it, but also like, it just feels like it's there. Like it's just, he has this unnatural talent of making these CGI pieces look like they're there too. Like didn't, didn't every single ship in this movie feel like it was there? Oh God. Yeah. All the, even all the shit in the desert, like the stuff, like the, 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 the mining vehicles, yep. like those rows of mining vehicles, felt like you were there, like you were walking right by them. It, it's a tough, and, and I know that sounds like, I know that sounds kind of ridiculous because like we've gotten so good with CGI and special effects and stuff, but it's not so much like the, the look of them, it's the fact that everything has like a, it almost feels like if you were to go to try to, in some movies like you can tell when something's CGI because it looks almost weightless, is like something right. that I always kind of think about. Everything in this, everything in Dune felt like it had weight. Like you could, walk up to the, um, you know, like the way the, the helicopters, like these bug helicopters, I don't know. I know there's a name for them. I can't think of it right off the top of my head. They're ornithopters. Ornithopters, thank you. Them. Yeah, like the, the the winged winged helicopters. Like, I think in other movies, those would almost feel like weightless. Those felt like real things. Like, mm-hmm. you almost could tell with these things, like how much effort it takes to get them off the ground. Yeah, dude, I totally hear you on that one. And like, what I see when I see the weight is like, for me, it's in the coloring. Like if that thing would have been like, um, like a bright, like steel color, like a platinum color, I think I would have like seen weightlessness there, Mm -hmm. but like they were, you know, like steel fucking, you know, designed to be in hot conditions type planes and everything like that, you know, and those, those planes, like, they had dirt on them. They had grime on them and stuff. They weren't like pristine and clean. And some of these like little details, I think really adds to like the visual weight of an object. Yes. Yes, exactly. It's like the, I know we've, we've talked about it before, so I won't harp on it anymore. Um, but like the sword fights in game of Thrones feel like they have a physical toll. Like it's hard to move in that armor. It's hard to swing a sword. It's hard to do all this shit. Whereas in something like, and it's different and it's totally fine. In something like the Witcher, Henry Cavill, I mean, he's supposed to be, like, supernatural. But, like, right. when Henry Cavill's in a sword fight, holy shit. It's like he's weightless. And, like, that's supposed to be like that. But, like, one feels real, one is surreal. 
Right. Exactly. Yeah. I understand what you mean, dude. It's like, there has to be, there has to be like, um, a certain kind of connection to like what you're seeing. And like, if somebody's in ridiculously heavy armor, carrying a ridiculously heavy sword, it should feel like you should feel while you're watching it, the difficulty in moving around in that and everything. And like, you're right. The Henry Cavill example with the Witcher is a really good idea. And you're right. There is definitely a supernatural element going on there, but he just does everything like way too smoothly, you know? And then he mm-hmm. caps it off with a, a, what's supposed to be a funny one liner and a mm-hmm. simple wine or something at the end of it, you know, it's just not how things are in, in real life. Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, how about you? What are you, what are you thinking here? Okay, dude. So, like, I couldn't think of like a specific like effect or like or anything like that. So, what I went is his signature, and just hear me out on this one: is that Villeneuve demonstrates a knowledge and appreciation of making movies that are derived from an established intellectual property, like with Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I like with the exception of some advancements in the the technology and stuff, it felt like I was in the first one, you know, like he didn't make too many changes and mm-hmm. anything that he did do on his own felt right with, with Dune. Like there are, if you're using the 1984 as like a base, like, yeah, he goes in a little bit of a different direction, but like from after reading the book, the set pieces and the designs are way more in line with what I see in the book than what I saw in David Lynch's movie. So there is just something about it, this him that it's either he picks the picks the right thing to do. He just has a feel for it. Like this, this maybe a feeling this kind of like unspoken sixth sense type thing that, that I don't have that I, that I probably never have, but this guy just seems to get it, you know, and if and I, I said this before with Blade Runner, I tweeted this exact same thing where it's like if he wanted to remake Pulp Fiction, I'd listen. Like there's nothing that I, I think that this guy doesn't understand. And even if he's even if Villeneuve never seen Pulp Fiction, which I highly doubt, but let's just say for our discussion, he's never seen it. I see this guy as the dude going and watching that movie and reading the script, and that's all he's doing for months until he is ready to actually start the production process. Because it's just a dude that like really cares about this kind of stuff, and it shows. Yeah, I, I, I yes, I think you're definitely. That's a really good call. I, I think he he understands the world in which he is. He's been tasked to create, even if it's an original, right? Like even if it's something that like you know someone else. Even if it's even if it's not a, I shouldn't say an original from his mind, but I mean like even if it's something that is uh, you know an original script, even if it's not his own. He better understands what is needed for that movie than probably a lot of directors do. And, you know, it doesn't mean that another director couldn't pull off and do something successful. It's just that, like, it's just that all of the all of the big notes and all of the small notes and all of the small touches are present in a way that makes perfect sense. Yeah, exactly. All these little details, these little appreciations and stuff, like, it's just... it is a talent that runs in him that I, I just don't think I've seen in a while. It seems like any time that um, like if we were to take the predator franchise, for example, and this is just the first thing that popped into my head, but like everybody is so eager to put their own stamp on the predator franchise, you know, like mm-hmm. whether it's the, the look, whether it's some crazy twist or, 
some new world, some new thing. Just there's always something new with these Predator movies that we as an audience get to learn about in some way, shape or form. And like I would, would want to think that if Villeneuve made a Predator movie, it probably would look a lot like the first one, but just a little bit more modern and stuff. And that's kind of like what I want here. Like, especially when you're dealing with something that's um, an already established intellectual property, like you just, and especially with intellectual properties that mean something to people the way that Dune and Blade Runner do, it's vital to nail these little specifics because these fans and stuff like that who have been reading Dune for 60 years and these people that have been rewatching Blade Runner over and over again since the 80s, like, and these are like who these movies are for. You know, they're mm-hmm. not for, they're not for the kid. The, the father taking his kids to the movie on a Saturday afternoon. That, that's not like who these movies are for. Granted, I endorse fathers taking their children to see more of these types of movies. It was only PG 13, but um, this is not who these movies are made for. It's like they're made. It's like they're grand movies that are made for like this specific niche amount of people. And, um, and he executes everything in a way that I, I don't have the ability to do. I, well, obviously, otherwise you'd be directing it. That's <laughs> <And> true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but oh, um, yeah. yeah, no, like I, yeah, like I would. Uh, he is one of those people I would be very interested to see a lot of his interpretations of existing properties that kind of went that kind of went a a, a little bit awry, like a Predator. Mm-hmm. Although the although the Predator movie that is upcoming kind of sounds interesting. Um, it takes place like the 1880s yes. i think or 1870s yes yeah yes you bet i'm very like with every predator movie i'm very very intrigued till usually about a week before it comes out so hopefully this one um hopefully this one is is one that maintains the intrigue and stuff yeah and it, it seems sucks. pretty interesting so you know, we'll see but yeah like i would i would love to see his interpretation of that i would love to see um uh, you know eventually he's going to work in TV at some point in time. I have a feeling that'll be a couple of decades down the road uh, when, when TV and movies are truly blurred um, at that point in time. But um, like, you know, as much as I, as much as I trust Noah Hawley with uh, his interpretation of alien, I would very much like to see Denny Villeneuve's interpretation of alien. I think that would be very intriguing. Oh, definitely, dude. Like, I will hope he does a RoboCop at some point in time, just for the fuck of it. Just do a RoboCop. Ooh, that would. Why? I'll tell you what. That would be. That would be truly interesting because the that the most recent RoboCop, one hundred percent missed the point of RoboCop. Hundred mm-hmm. percent. Right. right. And like, I'm not sure if that Mill Blomenkamp RoboCop thing is still happening. So if um, I'm I'm all welcoming his version of it too. But if it doesn't happen and the, the project goes in limbo for about a couple decades. Why the hell not give it to him? Like, why the hell not? Would be would be very interesting. I think he would be he would be one of the people on a short list that would would quote unquote get it. He would get it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Without a doubt, man. I, I completely agree with you on that. Mm-hmm. And this guy, um, he's got. I know he's he's older than the both of us, but there's still like such a bright future for him. And it's crazy, like for him being around as long as he has been. I. I think we're just most people anyway, a majority of the population is now just starting to get to know him. So in time, I mean, you could be looking at like another James Cameron, maybe one who doesn't devote his entire, the golden years of his life to an avatar franchise. Somebody like that. Not, not sure. Like (laughs) as much as, as much as I enjoy the spectacle of what avatar was, 
Um, and really kind of, again, it still holds its water, like, 11 years, 12 years later. But, like, I don't need, I don't need three more of them. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I need you, James, to go work on something different. Right. I'm like, I was good with uh, about an hour and a half into the first Avatar. Like, mm-hmm. I was pretty good, pretty good there. I don't need more movies. And it pisses me off because, like, you know, James Cameron has been this filmmaker that you and I have had just so much fun with this guy's movies, like our entire lives. You know, it's a Terminator going into fucking true. I love true lies. I'd still watch it. If it was on TNN, right. TNT right now, I sit through five hours of true lies with commercials. If it was mm-hmm. on right now and to see somebody that I have all this respect for that I've enjoyed his movies so much throughout my life, devote what is his golden years, like him being an older guy to three or four avatar movies just makes no sense to me. No, not really. I mean, I'm sure the like they'll they'll be visually like fantastic. I just won't care. Like after yeah. <laughs> after I get done seeing them, and granted, I guess they're like basically all coming out like in the next two years, like something like that. Because yeah. I know he filmed two of them like back to back or like at the same time. So like at least they'll be coming out like rapidly. But it's it's just like man, like why couldn't you spend that time on the crummy Terminator? that you produced yeah. like why couldn't you direct that one and like do i, I don't know <laughs> like it, it, I, I don't know i'd rather have him restore beatles footage like peter jackson just is doing for his beatles documentary mm-hmm. that's dropping sometime soon i'd rather have him do stuff like that than go on a whole other avatar thing but believe me i could man i could go on a tangent here i'm gonna pump the brakes a little bit but just know that i am very disapproving of this career choice by cameron <laughs> Man, a disappointing, a disappointing Canadian director. Yeah, I'm telling you, man. Like, just James, you could redeem yourself right now. Just release all the movies and say you're say you're reviving Terminator. You're writing, directing it, and um, if that's going to be your last movie, then go out with the largest possible fucking bang you can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, dude. So, what um, what was your standout special effect? I think um, for sure, you know, like I know a lot of people are gonna would bring this up. The sandworms look great. Like, they they really, truly, really, truly did look great. And, like, they felt, again, one of those things, like, they felt as as big as they're supposed to be in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, they just felt fucking enormous. Especially when we get the scene where uh, where Kynes takes down the two, um, takes down with her the two Sardaukar um, yeah. uh, soldiers. Just, like, the way that they swirl down into this fucking abyss with the worms. It, 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 it was, it's great. Like, so they... The worms look great, but I'm going to go, since that's just a very obvious one, one little detail that I loved was the way that the shielding works in this world. <laughs> it's the um, same one I had. Go okay, yeah, I love I the way yep. the shielding works. Like, it, it's not, like, impenetrable. You can get through it, but it just, like, it takes time. So, like, when the Harkonnens are bombing the shit out of, um, or so well, we see it first, like, we see it when uh, when Leto gets shot with, like, that, you know, the, the tranquilizing dart or whatever, mm-hmm. how it takes a several in a moment for it to finally break through the shield and get into him um, because he can't get to it in time. But then like we kind of see that advance um, when the Harkonnens like full, the full blown attack, they're dropping bombs and they sort of, they're almost like drills as they go through the shield and then explode the, you know, once they get through the shield, they then explode. It's just a really clever interpretation of what shielding is. Yeah, dude. So with that, um, I completely agree. That is mine all the way. And, um, the shielding from the 84 Dune oh, was good like, Lord, what was that? Yeah. I still, I'm just like, you could have saved money and just not done that at all. You could have had them like fight where they stop and you just, I don't know, blear, 
put Vaseline on the lens Just, or something. But all, all you all, like, there, there's a real simple fix that movies, even into the '90s, were doing. Just draw some like. Not draw, but like just on literally on the film, just rotoscope mm-hmm. in some like light effect. Yeah, where yep. where the sword is quote unquote hitting or the blades hitting. Just do that. Yeah, it, I know that's what they should have done. I hated that cube, fucking ugly, you know, whatever the hell you would call that. You couldn't see anything. No, you couldn't see anything at all. And I was like, wondering, like, I remember, like, watching the 84 Dune loaded one night, and I made it, that's when, like, I stopped watching it. I was just like, what the fuck are they doing here? And um, I couldn't stand it. It was like watching, like, block characters fight, like, the first, like, like Mortal Kombat, that's like what Mortal Kombat raw footage looked like in the 80s or something like that. Like, uh, Mortal Kombat is better than that. Yeah, oh, God, yeah, definitely. Like, there's there's some kind of, like video game system where like everything was squared it might be the virtual boy there's something where they really like played into like squares and Mm -hmm. like those kind of shapes Mm -hmm. and it it drove me nuts in the 84 one it drove me insane they they look like like, they look like two big um lego movie people yeah exactly just going to yeah going to town with these awful movements and just square bodies and stuff like that it's fucking awful dude and with this one they hit it on the head 100%. 100%. I lo- even the little three second shots where they give the explainer and Chalamet just goes one, two, three on his hand and then it turns red. I was like, thank God. They did visually, I understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. They have that change in color there to signify when the shield is being broken that it's not this impenetrable surface. And it was such a such a step up from 84 i had no choice but to put that in as my favorite it's well yeah it's a step up from 84 but i also i also do feel like i also do feel like the way that like the shield we get like that brief color flash and sort of the um almost 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 like they're um i don't know how to explain it almost like they're sort of like destabilizing you can kind of see like echoes of their like of their you know their bodies Oh yeah, like, yeah. It's just sort of like an interesting look above all mm-hmm. else. Like it's just you know, something you're probably not going to see necessarily um in another movie. Right. Yeah, exactly. There was just a lot of details going on there that made everything pop and work together in a really great and cool way and stuff. And just simple things. Like they they wear the device on their hands, it comes over them. Like I, they explain everything was explained very very well, very very quickly and very simple. To the point where, like, there was just—it just was one of these things where I'm like, well, like, what, the, what the hell were they doing in 1984? Like, there, there was just totally uncalled for. <laughs> there's, totally. there's, we could probably do a whole another episode about what were they thinking in 1984. So yeah. about yeah. that movie, but let, let's not get too far into it. Uh, how about, how about uh, we had the same standout effect? Um, did you? What did you? Just real quickly, what did you feel about the worms, sandworms? Okay, so um, my worms go as follows. Oh, okay, okay, I. Okay, I like I'm just gonna say like um sorry as follows meaning what I'm about to say sorry about that oh, okay. I was trying to get my trying to organize my thoughts for a second. I really love the grandeur of the worms. They um, size wise and what they're supposed to be. I thought he hits them a hundred percent on the head. Okay, I love the swirly teeth and everything. I love that also that people have knives and swords that are made from the teeth and everything. Mm -hmm. I like that there's a mythology behind the worm. Like there's a grand Mac daddy, big ass worm and stuff like that out there. Mm -hmm. If I was to have one critique on them and like, I don't even know, see, this is the problem. Like what I see every image of the sandworms that I've seen, 
either on the cover of books or, you know, in Dune fan art, the snakes look a little bit different or the worms look a little bit different where they almost have these like almost like flaps coming out of their head. I don't know. It's it's hard for me to explain, but there's like there's stuff on their heads that they didn't go with in the, the design and um, like, I'm cool that they decided to put their own take on it, but it's just for some reason I'm blinded by other people's interpretations of what these things look like. So it just, some of the specifics looked a little bit off to me, but then again, I'm only going off of what other people interpret these things to look like. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. I'm, I'm looking at some of the art right now. Um, and that sort of the, the flaps would definitely be more in tune with the 1984 version of the worms. They kind of had something similar, um, okay. happening with it. Although it was like more like, you, you know what, like the, the 1984 ones look more like the, um, the, um, the Gorgon from, um, oh, from Stranger Things. things. Yeah, what, like, Demogorgon. Yeah, Demogorgon, yeah, not the Gorgon. Demogorgon. Um, the way like it opens up, I yeah, these would be more like almost like leeches, like the way that uh, that these yeah. sandworms look. Yeah, and like I'm like I, I'm totally cool with it. It's just something that kind of hit me unsuspectedly, and um, it's not. I wouldn't even tell them to go back and change it or anything like that. It's just this little difference that I've known. But this is this is kind of the problem you get when other people become really obsessed about something that's just written in a book. You ju- you see all these other people's interpretation of what they're supposed to look like. And even like when you look at these um, song of ice and fire, Wikipedia pages and stuff, there's like, you, you go to Stannis Baratheon's page, there's 10 different drawings of Stannis Baratheon. None of them look like the actor and stuff. But to me, the actor who played Stannis, that's, that's what comes to my mind every single time. It's mm-hmm. not like this big ass dude. It's just this little wiry, angry, motivated fighter guy, you know? So like sometimes when this happens, it throws me for a, just a little bit of a loop in my mind. And when my expectations don't 100% align with some of the stuff that I've seen, um, or sorry, when, when something doesn't align 100% like what I've seen before, it just causes a little bit of a disconnect for me, but it doesn't take away from anything in the movie. Like I, I, the way that they shot these things with like them coming up and them approaching and like the sand kind of moving and vibrating, all that stuff was absolutely fucking badass. It's just, it didn't look like how I thought it was going to look big fucking deal. You know, that that's all I'm saying here. So it doesn't take away from anything. It's just not what I expected. Gotcha. I understand. Yeah. I, yeah, it's one of those, it's one of those things I, I don't care about unless like it's, I don't care about, you know, what a character looks like versus their book counterpart or like the previous, um, unless it like, it, it goes into a weird direction. Like if, if yeah. Paul Atreides in this movie was, like a six foot three muscle bound black guy, I would be like, right. well, okay. I feel like you kind of missed the point of what Paul Atreides is supposed to be. Um, right. Like totally. So like if the worm showed up and like they looked, they're like, they were clearly like snakes versus worms. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like it, it clearly was a snake versus a worm. I'd be like, ah, I think you missed the point. Like yeah. Yeah. this isn't a snake. It's a worm. There is a fucking difference. A very big difference. 
Right. And this one, like, it's such a, like, I, it, there's this thing called, it's like a vampire fish or something like that. Like, it, it looks like, like a crazy cool, like prehistoric snake, you know, like there are prehistoric snakes that have similar, not like a circle of teeth and everything, but that are large and that kind of resemble that um, design of the worm. So like, I, I really like, I think that they did a great job with it. It's just a little bit askew from what I had originally expected. Yeah, I gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So, yeah, believe me, dude, I could go on for hours about the designs on worms because I just noticed that, like, I happen to really, really like these things. For some stupid reason, I'm just a sucker for giant underground-ass worms. Between this and Tremors, I fucking love it. So oh, There's there's um, another property that was clearly influenced by, by Dune. Clearly. <laughs> clearly. Clearly. And in the books, it even mentions spikes on the side of the sandworm that help it help a move. push through the sand. Yep. Yeah. So there's right out of Dune. Right mm-hmm. out of Dune, for sure. So, um, what um, to you, what's your standout shot in the film? I, I have two here. I'm going to cheat. I think like I always have two, usually just in case we have the same one, yeah. but, um, yeah. but um, I, I'm going to cheat here and it, I'll, I'll go, I, actually, I'll go in order of like how I like them. Um, the first time that we get to see the Baron actually float and the way like he just kind of like slowly picks up in front of, um, in front of David Desmalchian's character. Is it, yep. is it Peter? I think is the Peter. Peter. P-I-T-R. Yes, yeah. Yeah. That sort of like that sort of first shot of him like kind of floating up above is just like a great. It's it's again one of those shots that like it, it that shot says a lot about about him about the character the way he views himself the way we're supposed to view the character um, and also it just looks good like it just it's right. just a fabulous looking shot and then the large overhead shot of the Sardaukar blood sacrifice is just awesome like oh yeah again a shot that like. You have all these dozens, at least probably hundreds, of um, conquered enemies uh, being having their blood let out of their naked bodies into mm-hmm. a massive bath that they're just going to anoint themselves with. It's one of those. It's one of those shots when you see it from above. You're like, well, I know. I need. I know everything I need to know about the Sardaukar. Like, yeah, everything I need to know is right here. And what a fucking like unforgettable. Uh, what an unforgettable scene that is. Oh yeah, definitely do. Yeah. I love that shot of the, the, the Sardaukar. That that's like one of those things that really makes its point. And those guys are going to become more of a thing. Like mm-hmm. as the story goes on, like that's one, you don't do introduction shots like that for characters that are going to amount to nothing. Okay. Right. Like that's right. Those are, those are characters that mean fucking business and everything like that for sure. And when, when you're shot of the Baron, that's another really, really great one. It says so much about him and stuff like that. And they do it in this, like, like if you had not been familiar with um, the first Dune or read the books or anything like that, if you're just walking in fresh, that is going to have just such a crazy impact. And you see this, this huge, heavy set guy just like floating like that and wearing that long, like dark shroud and everything. Mm-hmm. It just it says so much and stuff like that. It's a mm-hmm. really fucking awesome shot and everything. And like I went um, I went with one that um, you see it very quickly right before the big battle starts up. Everybody like looks up in the sky and they just see that big fucking syndrilical ship and everything and all the, you know, you're only getting it for like a second, but it just looks so close in the sky. And I am always a sucker for that kind of stuff. Like even the original Rogue One trailer where you're following the X-Wing fighter going through the, the forest and he goes up and it's like all of a sudden the Death Star is just right there. 
So like, I've always loved those kind of shots in movies and that to me, like just, it was the last, like, um, the last kind of hurrah for some of the space stuff in the movie and everything. And Mm -hmm. when, when we're getting into science fiction, like, you know, part of me always defaults to some sort of like space type element, even though the genre is so much more than that. And like, just seeing that was just like, okay, yeah, now I realize like why, like we're in, why this movie is going to end up being like a classic, a modern classic science fiction movie. It's just like, yeah, here we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that shot is fantastic. That the, the spacing guild highliner. Um, and it also, it's also one of those shots that gives you, you know, even though you can deduce it actually at that point in time. Yeah. At that point in time, you can already, we've already gotten like the, the, the total picture of the betrayal. But mm-hmm. um, but for but for the um, for House Atreides who do not have the full picture of the betrayal, um, just sort of inklings that like something might be happening. Um, that's like the last like that's like the last signal, right? That the Spacing Guild is the pre- are the people who ushered all of the Harkonnen here. So, like, right. hey, by the way, no one's coming to help you because the yeah. people that would come to help you are the ones who put this together. Yep, that's that's exactly fucking right, dude. Just that last um, no no hope. You're here on your own, and you have lost type shot and everything. Yeah. It's like very, it's very impactful. There's like there are shots in like the um, the red wedding of Game of Thrones, like on Caitlyn Stark's face, where it's just like, yeah, you guys like you lost and everything. Mm-hmm. Or even that um the shot the uh, of the the Stark camp that begins the uh, it's about three minutes into the episode after the red wedding where. Um, you're following some random character and he looks up over the, the castle and it's just fucking chaos and everything. It's like one of those kind of shots. Yeah. You just see it and you know that these people that you've grown to have this relationship with, they've lost. A lot of them aren't going to make it out of this. Yep, exactly. Exactly. A, a shot, again, it's a visual medium. And when you, when a single shot or, you know, like, an, you know, a single scene can kind of tell the whole story, that's uh, that's a that's a good shot or that's a good scene. Definitely, dude. Definitely. All right, dude. So let's move on to the story. And I have this question for you because I personally thought the story was really good. And they did a really good job constructing everything. They did a good job of letting us learn about the world, letting us learn about the rules. Um, I even thought for a story where the big battle scene happens literally, the, the movie's two and a half hours long, two hours, 35 minutes. The Harkonnens evade and an hour and 17 minutes into it. So it was literally smack dab in the middle mm-hmm. of the movie. And uh, for them to do that and to have an ending that doesn't go out with a, the big, you know, Hollywood effects bang, I thought they did a really good job with the story. So I wanted to ask you if um, you thought that there was anything that that they left out in the story, any that there could have been more of in the story. Not not exactly. There were, there were some things that actually because of the 1984 um, version, which does a lot of explaining, as we'll probably get to. Um, there were some things that were clarified a little bit that they just didn't mm-hmm. really dip into. But in terms of how the story was set up and the way that we got to, we got to introduce the characters, introduce to what the what their journeys are going to be. Um, the way that we, you know, I already mentioned how like they set up the betrayal in a very particular way. Like everything, everything explained itself the way it was supposed to. Yeah, I completely there. This whole thing had a very, very organic, just 
nothing seemed forced or shoved down your throats and everything like just the little quips of information that we would get either from the the video libraries or somebody like just explaining something via a couple lines i thought we had a really clear understanding of like basically like 98 percent of it mm-hmm. if there was one thing that you might be able to help me out with this but like one thing i couldn't quite figure out was i didn't quite understand the motivation like if there was the Harkonnens and the Atreides just like outright hated each other. I know that there's a line from the, the Barons just like after a hundred years of ba- hundreds of years of battle between our houses, like right before he right before he um, the tooth, the cracking of the tooth. But I didn't know if there was anything more to that. If there was yes, just like there yes, there is. It's 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 um I, I think it's in that same scene um where Peter is actually talking. And okay. I think it's in that same scene. No, t- take it back. It's in the scene. Um, it's in. It's in where Peter's with the Sardaukar, and okay. he talks about how the Empire is growing fearful of the power of House Atreides. So, oh, okay. okay. That's why the Empire is more than happy to set up, and the Spacing Guild are more than happy to set up this uh, this betrayal of House Atreides. Okay, I. I do remember that I'm drawing a blank on a little bit of some of the lines around that particular line, but um, I just, it was one of those things that I, for all, like for such a grand plan and everything, I just would have thought we would have gotten a little bit more as to some of the history behind the two houses. But um, I guess in the line, they gave it to us. It just, it wasn't in like a, um, to the extent in which I wanted. Right. Right. The way to put it. So, right. And well, it's hard to, and it's hard, like, because we don't, actually meet the emperor right that you know like that that part gets left out and in and even if you wanted to do a direct comparison to 1984 it's the reasons behind it are different so okay it it, it's not even like you couldn't even draw the comparison there so like yeah there's there's a line that peter gives to the sardaukar i don't know general i guess um basically that you know like we know you're the most fierce warriors and we need you because basically essentially says because because of the empire's growing um wariness of the power of house atreides gotcha it's, it's so interesting that the emperor is fearful of the house you know developing house but the house with all the money and stuff like well, i mean it's actually a metaphor for like kind of how things are in society the people who have all the money are like afraid of people that don't have any money for some weird reason but uh but i i get what you're saying here okay and like that that explains everything a lot more so that was one thing um the other thing which there's no place for this. I just think it's so interesting, and hopefully we get more of what I'm about to talk about in the in the future movies. And it's the idea of this Butlerarian jihad, aka the Great Revolt, like the generations of chaos that kind of led to the the world that we see in Dune being the way that it is. And uh, like, I don't really have too much information on it, but it's like um, there's a god of machine logic being the computer so it looks like some kind of like war between man and technology and at the end of it they decide that they're not going to build like machines that can replace men and um yeah it's it's where um we can you can even simplify it now it's what happens if man creates ai um truly artificial intelligence um in theory it would have to immediately surpass our intelligence and if it pa- surpasses our intelligence, what use does it have for us? So the reason why we don't, why we have swords, 
the reason mm-hmm. why we we you know there are guns and things like that but the reason why there aren't like androids and stuff in 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 um in the dune timeline is because around our timeline somewhere in like the late 2000 like the late 21st or late 22nd century there is a war with ai with a sentient ai and mm-hmm. to ensure that it never happens again we relegate all technology to things like ships and navigation shielding like Everything else has to be done by people. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And I um I know there's there's no room for this in this movie, but hopefully in a later installment, maybe we get like a I'll take a monologue of somebody talking about it, maybe a um somebody drew cave paintings or something somewhere. I don't know. But like I would really like if they touched on this because I, I think it's very, very interesting and it might kind of shine a little light on th- this world being the way that it is. You know, that doesn't have to be major, but I would like a call back or some type of acknowledgement of this in the future movies. You'll, you'll probably see it. It won't be in the movies. You'll probably see it in the TV show they're doing. Okay. About the, oh, Bene, yes. about the Bene Gesserit. That's right. There's a show in the works or something like that somewhere too. Yeah, I read. A, I read a little couple. Uh, next, I mean, that. it's almost like already like next year. Oh wow. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Jesus. So they're really going to town on this. It's like, man, we have the Game of Thrones spinoff coming already, and now a, a Dune spinoff TV show coming already. All right. Well, I'll look forward to it, and I will totally be there. So I hope that we get. Um, I hope that they d- dive into this part of the, the Dune mythology a little bit farther um, in a future intellectual property streamed off stemmed off of the show so right right yeah i mean well and i say next year like that's targeted date right now it could be 2024 for all i fucking know so yeah yeah i gotcha gotcha so um moving into this and we kind of talked a little bit about this but like as far as like what are your thoughts on the sandworms as an element of the story uh they're good yeah i mean like i I don't know like it's hard to like it's hard to put a grade on it necessarily but like they're they're present the the appropriate amount of time and we know that like it's almost like um they're almost like they're almost the idea of um you know um uh gosh how do, how do i properly put this um they're almost the physical personification of foreshadowing like we know that they're going to be an important role. They're they're going to have an important mm-hmm. role in what like unfolds in the next in the next movie, and we know that they're going to be important to to both um, to both Atreides to to both you know the war to everything else that's going on, um, and like and you know if you want to get even deeper into the metaphor, like it's just beneath the surface, um, it's there, right. it's all like waiting for us. So like yeah, I mean it's good. Yeah, I think it's something that's definitely unique. Um, you know, after seeing all the, you know, incarnations and iterations of sandworms and other stuff and, you know, big things living underground that we've seen throughout movies and everything, I happen to think that this is a, uh, a very interesting one. Um, as the story goes on, the sandworms do have a lot of relevance to the world of Arrakis and everything, which is cool, and a lot of relevance to the spice. So we'll get into a little bit more of that as the story goes on. And, like, I got to tell you, man, like, it's just like one of these things that I'm incredibly entertained by. It's like, there's this desert planet and there's these giant worms living underneath it. It's very simple. Like I I don't have 
too much of an in-depth thing. It's just this really interesting and different element of a science fiction story that I that I happen to enjoy. Yes. Yep. I I, I will second that. Co-sign it. Cool. All right, dude. So moving into the next one, um, do you think it's the right move by the studio to do the Dune story over multiple movies? Uh, well, it's that's that, that was Denny Villeneuve's decision, uh, not the studio's decision. Um, had the studio had it their way, it'd been one movie, <laughs> which would have been a big time fucking mistake. There's As no we've way, already like, seen. <laughs> yeah, you can't like. There's there are certain things like this is like Watchmen, like the Watchmen graphic novel. Like somehow they put it into a movie. Snyder did the best job that he could. I happen to think that I don't know how anybody else is going to do anything differently. So um, with this, I think it is by far and away the right move to spread it out over a couple of movies. Um, I I have a feeling, like which I'll get into the, with the next question, um, just how some of these movies might go. But in general, there is way too. I mean, there's stuff from the book that they even left out in this installment. So believe me, like this, doing it over multiple movies is the only way to uh, to get this story to complete this story. Yes. And yes. Um, okay, so with going in that, we already got the green light for the second one. Are we getting a? Is it going to be three, four? What are you thinking here? Oh, there's not going to be any more than two with Denis Villeneuve. Absolutely okay, not. So- so he's out. I could. I don't see him sticking around for three. Like and and, pretty... if, and there's and if that happens, I can't imagine that they have the hubris to try to make a third, fourth, or fifth. Okay. Yeah. I'm like. I don't see it going into four and five and six. There's no. There's just not enough steam in the story. Two. I think two might be appropriate because I was talking about this with this dude at the bar last week. Um, we went out with one of Jess's old work friends and everything who just happened to be a big Dune fan. And like, I was like, okay, so you only have a couple of like big, big type events that are on the equivalent level of the invasion of the, um, of the Har- of the Harkonnens. Okay. You might be able to get a really cool action sequence out of the Fremen raiding one or two of the, um, you know, like the, the spice vehicles and the, mm-hmm. the fields and everything. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if you're going to get a whole, I don't know if that's big enough to make that the final like showdown in a movie and stuff. And it, it seems like it's a really great, um, like how we saw in the first Dune where it's like a really cool event to happen in the middle. But cause like, I just don't know if you're going to get a whole movie of like, okay, now that they've raided this, what are we going to do? They go on a couple more raids and then eventually just make their way closer to the capital. I, I don't know. Like it just—it doesn't seem like you have a lot to to get a third movie out of. But you could have a really solid, completely action-packed second movie that's, you know, that number one wraps up the story very nicely. You you know do what you need to do, but also like you're getting you'll be going full throttle. You know what I'm saying? You can get the rage. You can get uh, the Fremen taking everything back. You could get, you know, Chani being pregnant, Paul drinking the life of water and going to sleep for a couple of years, whatever it is. Um, you could really have all that in a second movie. I just don't like if we're talking about like actually making a entertaining product that isn't going to like totally drag on forever. I, I two is a better move than three, in my opinion. Well, and, and not only that, the again, the way that we the way that we talk about Dennyville News movies they're none of these neither of these are going to bring home 800 million dollars so what chances to have of getting a, a third installment if it doesn't bring home almost a billion dollars 
no that's a really good point too like i you're right and even if they have a really big opening weekend for the second movie, like I don't know if there's going to be enough demand or wind in the sails to carry this thing for a third movie and stuff. Like I don't want to see Paul as an old guy dealing with his time on Arrakis. Like I'm cool with if they do it, I don't know if they will, but if the last scene is Paul and the rain coming down and everything like that, that's a good way to end it. Just end it there because I feel if you start to go beyond that, you're really running into like, you know, like that uh, hangover three territory and stuff like that, where it's just, okay, so now we're having a trilogy just for fuck's sake. You know, we have an established universe. Let's just make another movie for the hell of it. Yeah. I think if you wanted to expand farther out, because there is so much, and I know Frank Herbert's son and another writer have been writing the book since like for a while. Correct. I yeah, mean, like a for like quite a, a long time. Um, oh yeah. There's plenty of other material that probably would probably would do really well, and we'll see about this Bene Gesserit TV show that would probably do well serialized as like even if it's not like a you know multiple seasons, multiple miniseries probably yeah. could could really tell some of these other stories in the Dune universe. Yeah, there's a real rich canon here. I mean, there's books out the yin yang for this that they're probably still writing them in some capacity, mm-hmm. and those don't seem movie worthy it's like it seems more of like a television type thing like star wars like take the mandalorian for example and i know this is not necessarily the best one to use but like the mandalorian you could probably make a movie out of that it'd probably be very successful but it just seems to work better with the show that's kind of like what i'm thinking here is like even if for some reason there's like a um one of these Dune books catches a wave of popularity amongst like people because of the movies and stuff. They're not going to rush to immediately jump to make another movie. I think the best way for this story to carry on and for them to explore more elements of Arrakis is just going to be through a show. Cause anything that, even if another director takes it over, it's like you're following Bill and Noob, man. It's not like you're following me directing a movie and stuff. So I do want to see the Chema cut of Dune. Oh, believe me, man. Everybody (laughs) just gets high. Everybody just gets high and see shit in the desert for, for two and a half hours. It's great. My my cut is just, my cut is just 20 minutes of us talking about peeing in our still suits. Yeah, (laughs) that's right, dude. That's it. By all the characters. Followed by all the characters working out that's yep. right, in the desert. <laughs> so, like, I, you know, I, I don't even know if I, if I was a director, I, I know, like, for the money, the answer is probably going to be yes. But in terms of, like, the product, like, do you really want to follow that? You know, like, do you really want to be the guy who has to follow Hendrix in concert? Like, no, of course not. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a, it'd be a tough act to follow, and I just don't think a necessary act. And I do love how you brought up the Mandalorian co- comparison. Because, uh, like, I could not imagine that as a, as a movie or multiple movies. But as, like, a 30 to 40 minute TV show, perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. Oh, definitely, dude. Definitely. And, like, whenever I make this jump to Disney+, Plus, I plan on finishing it. I'm just, we're having this thing with Netflix right now. Like, I'm trying to say goodbye to Netflix because I just don't really watch all that much on there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so... It's happening. It's going to be a point in time when all of a sudden I'm just going to be like talking about the Mandalorian and everything like it's a new thing. So just just give you just to give you a heads up about that for the future. My God, did you see the Black Widow movie? It's awesome. No, no one so, said that. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I haven't seen it. Um, I, I am interested in seeing Eternals, but it's going to be a while before I even get around to that. So, like, I've been to the movies twice in the last month. Um, I don't plan on burning my next experience for a Marvel movie. I'd rather do something different. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> All right, man. So we're at the last section here, which is 1984 versus 2021. And um, if you had to choose one thing, and I know there's a bunch of them, but if there's one thing from the 2021 Dune that did be- that was better than the 1984 Dune, what would it be? Well, I think most importantly, it was coherent storytelling. Yes. Um, that's probably one yeah. very oh, big, yeah. important thing it did better. Um, you know, like, and that's, and I say that, to, like, so the 1984 version, if you took out all of the inner monologues that every single character has, and yeah. if you just cut Virginia Madsen out of this, out of the movie, mm-hmm. what would you even have any clues to what the fuck was going on? I want to say no. I'm like, I don't remember that much of it. And yeah, I got to say a lot of the, a lot of the expositional stuff is told through a voiceover, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So you probably wouldn't have that much of an idea of what the hell's going on. And, and you get the whole, essentially you get the whole setup of what's going on between House Harkonnen, Atreides, what's going on with the Spacing Guild, what's going on with the, the known empire. Um, you get like all of that, like in the first like minute and a half with Virginia mm-hmm. Madsen giving, giving a voiceover from a character that I have no idea has any bearing on anything. Um, right. <laughs> like it, it's this movie would be and like it's funny because there's been a bunch of articles recently about like people like you know if you could really go back and watch it it's not that bad no <laughs> fuck off it is that bad it's so bad that david lynch basically said is there a way you can take my name off of this movie and no director does that like there was so much studio meddling. There was so much like bullshit that he had to deal with. He, he, his, this experience of that movie was so traumatic for him and like professionally traumatic for him that he doesn't even want to watch Denny Villeneuve's Dune. And he said he won't yeah. because it's like, it's, he's just like, it was like, this is the worst period of my life was trying mm-hmm. to make this movie. So every article that I see that like, Oh, well this, it's, you know, it's a little weird. It's a little wonky. No, it's just bad. Like, right. There are some there are some totally fine performances inside of this movie, but it's a bad movie that is incoherent, that doesn't make a lot of sense, that is throwing again folding like six books worth of information into two hours and fifteen minutes. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, man, I'm I'm in the same boat as you. I wrote down execution of story, so we're we're in the <laughs> yeah. same neighborhood here. We're yeah. living next door to each other, and yeah, man, this. Like, I understand, like, I can definitely understand, like, David Lynch's perspective on this whole thing. And, and like, so if he wants to take his name off the movie, like, I get it, dude. I totally get it. And to address the this group of people that are, like, it's not that bad, to put it, like, to almost paraphrase, would you just go fuck yourselves, guys? I, I hate when this shit happens because when when this remake culture that we're living in and stuff. And especially when something from the past, like is not as good or it's kind of like, okay, well like maybe there's a reason for the reboot. Like just the movie was bad or like they could have done more with it. There's always this group of people that like seems to cling on to the original. Like it's the greatest fucking thing ever. And it almost like when I hear like what you're saying here, like I'm imagining like, the Vice Entertainment article, like, we sat through eight hours of Dune, 
1984 version and guess what guys it is awesome like stuff like that that's kind of like what i'm seeing that's exactly who's writing it it's people who weren't even alive when the movie like came out so like you know and not i mean not neither of us well i think i was like alive i was like several months old but like people that weren't like coherent and sentient and self-aware and saw mm-hmm. that movie are the ones who are like you were now like twenty seven years old like it's really not that bad of a movie shut the fuck up it's a bad movie right. there's some there's some things in it that I did like but like it's a bad movie it is uh, this is sort of how like I I was thinking about this nineteen eighty four movie are three separate movies happening at once and only a couple times do they actually meet yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, man. We, we like, that's have a really fucking good way to put we it. We have whatever's going on with the Emperor, played by the late great Jose Ferrer. Um, we have obviously we have the Harkonnen, uh, Harkonnen, sto- Harkonnen storyline with um, with Sting, and I can't remember the actor who plays the Baron. Um, and then we obviously have the Paul Atreides storyline, and like they barely overlap, like barely overlap. Right. It seems like maybe like the end is where everything finally yep. like comes together and stuff like yep. that. Yeah, dude, you're totally right. And like I when I see stuff like the articles that we've just talked about, I really hate to say this, but it really makes me lose my faith in like online journalism and stuff like. Oh, there just are... now you lost it. <laughs> no. Oh, no. Believe me, I've, this is it's been going for a while. Um, and like, no joke, man, like I, I'm going to tell you this outright, like. I really don't care about like other people's movie opinions and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't either. I, I once, yeah, I once read um, a headline for an article that was like, um, and it's, they're totally on point with their, with their opinion, but they're like um, the second MGMT album is like the, the new generation's Weezer's Pinkerton, you know, like it was making this comparison. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I agree with you. Not going to read the article. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> unless like there are two, I feel online journalism right now has got two jobs, which is to um, be involved in the political stuff and make us aware of as much as humanly possible with all this QAnon and January 6th stuff. And even the, this Kyle Rittenhouse fucking nonsense that's going on, like this journalism should be there or in science. That's it. I don't care about, um, I don't care about the entertainment stuff and like sports journalism. Like, um, if you're not doing the hot take bullshit, like then I'm there, you know what I'm saying? You want to like write an article about like a football coach reviving a program. I'm totally cool with that. I do not want any part of your whole, like Zach Wilson is going to be a Patrick Mahomes type fucking articles, like those kinds of bullshit. So yeah, like I, I know that the types of articles that you're describing, they've been driving me nuts for like a while now. And I have seen examples of like what you're talking about, haven't read them, but I've seen like either the tweets or these like, you know, online blogs and shit. And uh, let's just know people like what you should really say is you should just say like, yes, I really, really like David Lynch, but um, this movie was not one of his best ones. Not one of those guys that's like, I love that David Lynch so fucking much. I have to defend Dune because if we ever meet and he read the article that I wrote about him, he's going to say something. No, David Lynch isn't reading your shit. Okay. <laughs> like, and I'll personally assure you, he'd probably be much more appreciative if you were straightforward with him instead of dancing around your uh, like, feelings about the movie because you're such a fan. Yeah. David Lynch just got Twitter recently. So I'm sure he's never read a single fucking review from someone under the age of 50 um, right. about one of his movies. Right. So, 
Yeah, it's and it, it, it just this article that I'm thinking about in particular. This guy was I forget who was right. I, it might have been someone from Vice, actually. Um, <laughs> um, no, you know what it was? It was Vulture. It was like the uh, New York Magazine owns like it's yeah. Vulture is like a vertical for it now. Um, yeah. So it's through Vulture, and this this uh, the guy who was writing it was just like, you know, it's so it's it's it gets a bad rap. It's so fucking bizarre. Um, like, which is, it is very bizarre. Um, and he was like, here's the thing that made me very confused because like I, cause I, I've seen dude 84 before and I just watched it again recently for this, um, for this podcast. And the guy like mentions how, like, he's like, you know what, whatever sting, you know, stings being crazy. He's doing his thing in this movie. And I'm like, I don't recall sting. I mean, I know he's in this movie, but like, I don't recall sting being a big part of this movie. And then no, upon this most recent rewatch, he's not. Um, so I don't know really what you would have seen that would have made you think he's being crazy. Yeah, and you know something? I don't even think he's all that fucking crazy no. either. I think Sting is trying to play Alex from A Clockwork Orange and yep. maybe gets somewhere in the area of that character and stuff. But no, it's it's I don't... And that's something else that gets me because the writer is probably like, okay, so this is clearly just the only guy that I recognize from this entire movie, Sting, and I'm going to focus on it. And I'm really just going to amp up this whole part of the movie that doesn't even exist because I like Sting and guess what he's into, you know, like there's, I feel that these people, when they make this shit, their opinions come are rooted in something that is just not even related to like what they're actually watching. Like if there's anybody in that movie that a younger writer might have a relationship with, it's, it's probably sting out of all of the people in the movie. And they probably only had that relationship because their parents like the police. Right. Right. Exactly. If you, if you want to talk about something, doing something totally fucking insane, it's whatever movie the Baron is in is like, he is insane. It is not, Again, he is in a different movie from everyone else, and yeah. that's totally fine. It just doesn't fit with anything else. And he's played by Kenneth McMillan. Um, I'm not sure. Click him through here real quick. I don't know if I recognize him from anything else. Um, from Amadeus, but uh, yeah, I mean, he died like he died like in like 30 years ago. But um, like that's a crazy performance that really truly doesn't fit anything i don't know what the fuck he was talking about with sting sting's got like eight lines and yeah like other than like one time appearing shirtless i, I don't really know like what else like what else you would have picked out <laughs> that really would have stood out about whatever sting was doing yeah and like sting has gone shirtless before the dude is fucking beautiful he's beautiful back then he's still an attractive old man he's gone shirtless before there's nothing nuts about attractive people going shirtless I, there's nothing nuts about rock stars going shirtless <laughs> yeah that's right there's nothing there's nothing crazy about ugly people going shirtless everybody goes shirtless uh, that was that was just one of the weirder <laughs> that that point really stuck out because i was like i don't like that's what you're pulling out of this uh, okay like <laughs> kenneth mcmillan is way weirder but whatever yeah i I can't stand stuff like that. And I know that it's not going anywhere, even though I want it to, it's probably just going to blow up and become bigger. And uh, like ever since you sent me that sketch about how vice picks their stories and it's the dude flipping <laughs> dumb against the wall. Um, I have had just this, that kind of shit has just been more on my radar and I am definitely sick of it, dude. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of over that we, shit. So yeah, you know what yeah. though? And I will say this. In I will say this. If you they got my click, 
And that's exactly what these articles exist for, just to get clicks. Because I can't imagine that anyone really thinks in any way, shape, or form that Dune 1984 is anything other than, like, sort of an example of, like, what happens when um, seemingly, like, a lot of, again, a a, a great filmmaker, a cast full of tremendous actors and actresses, and it just turns into a huge sloppy mess. Like... It, it's sort of like a almost like a, a cautionary tale more than anything else but like to call it like a, a, a underrated or low-key good movie no it's not i'm sorry it is no, not absolutely not and um yeah that hopefully whatever the vulture and stuff like that hopefully that editor sat down and it's just like okay uh going in 2022 we're not going to do this shit but i doubt that that happened he's probably and... like yeah go write go write more of it yeah <laughs> go go talk about how uh how the dark knight sucks like that's what we want <laughs> okay you know that's coming in, in like about a decade <laughs> yeah oh yeah just wait for the new pattinson batman to come out and be like man robert pattinson he's been our batman all along everybody else has been garbage that's exactly what we're, we're looking at in mm-hmm. the future so <laughs> all right dude so Last question here is, um, is there anything that the 84 Dune does better than the 2021 Dune? They, they do incoherent storytelling far better. Um, yes. <laughs> but, but actually, it was because of, it was actually because of the massive amount of exposition that, like, some of the, some of the, some of the dialogue about the Spacing Guild in uh, 21 were, it was actually kind of answered in 84. Like, there's okay. just some lines of dialogue about the Spacing Guild that sort of cleared a couple of things up. Like, in terms of, like, who they were, why they, you know, sort of the sort of the unseen power brokers of, of, yeah. what the, of the Empire. And it actually really did sort of clear that up. Um, but mm-hmm. it wasn't like I, it wasn't like I needed... It, like, I, it was an assumption I already had. And then yeah. re-watching 84, it was like, oh, okay, this cleared that up for sure because you had to explain everything that happened in this book um and you somehow got it all into this movie which is just uh, i guess that that's something it did better it got the whole book in there somehow yeah that's right it achieved we managed to cram a whole book into two and a half hours so way to go david lynch and giada de Laurentiis's uncle way to go guys that's what that's, i'm talking that's about. right that's right yeah <laughs> yeah he was the executive uh producer or something in the yep. movie <laughs> and uh, mine is a really quick one um and it's really specific too, but like I happen to really love the shot of the um, when Duke when Leto takes everybody out to see the sand mining or the spice mining like in real time and everything they fly out and mm-hmm. there's the whole thing about getting the guys off the ship because the worm is coming. I really love the shot of when they look out the window and they see the worm like you know taking in the the machine and stuff. I just happened to think that it looked a little bit more like haunting to me than what we saw in the um, in the new one, which was I'm telling you the the sand and everything, all that stuff. It looked really cool. But for some reason, like the shot of the sandworm taking in the spice mining machine in the 84 one, it is like one of a few shots in the movie that really sticks with me. So I happen to like that a little bit better. I gotcha. I gotcha. You know what? Like here's here's why like legitimately we'll give credit like there 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 it wasn't like it was full of bad acting there was definitely some like weird decisions crazy choices but like no one was like no one was mailing it in no one was being lazy there wasn't like you know what i mean like yeah the kenneth mcmillan playing the baron made a choice but he fucking went balls to the wall with that choice 
I mean, it was a very, to, to kind of put it like in perspective, it was a very Nick Cage kind of performance. Um, yeah, I gotcha. Is what he's going for. But like, at least he committed to it. Like there were, there were just like no bad performances. And we, I know we talk about that a lot. Like you can have a bad movie with good performances in it. Um, mm-hmm. And you get a lot of that here. Um, Kyle MacLachlan is totally, totally fine as Paul Atreides. Like there's nothing wrong with it. Um Francesca Annis is totally fine as Lady Jessica. Like she's pretty solid, actually. Um, you know, she's got a lot. She's got a lot to do in this in this movie. Like everyone, even Jurgen Prochnow is really good as um, as as Leto Atreides. Like there's good stuff there, in in mm-hmm. terms of like the performances. But again, that's like we're talking like <laughs> the odd similarities between these two movies, even though they're like on opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, all of the there's a, this movie is loaded with good performers. Loaded with good actors. It's there's a great director at the helm. It's just like it's just weird when movies like this turn out as bad as they do. Yeah, it's it's kind of like one of those like um the parts are better than the whole I guess type yeah. situation and yeah. stuff where you could enjoy little things about it, but it, when in terms of like um the the thing as a whole, you're just like ah it's okay. It's like kind of like the new Bleachers album, which is like, yeah, there's some good songs on there, but there's just no way it's as good as the first two Bleachers albums. And there are a bunch of albums out there that if you gave me 30 minutes, I'd give you 40 of them. But uh, Mm -hmm. like, I I get what you're saying here. Like you could tell, and the, the performances are good. These people do go balls to the wall and stuff, but they just happen to be in like, um, in like a really bad tasting soup. Yep, that's <laughs> delicious. Delicious little morsels in an awful broth. That's yeah, that's yeah. June 1984. Um, yeah, it, yeah, that's that's a really good way to put it. It's just it happens. I mean, again, like their movie movie history is littered with like these sort of mistakes, where it's just mm-hmm. like you you look at it and you're like, how did this not work? Like, <laughs> like how did we right. miss so badly on this? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, definitely, dude. And like, it's, um, it's one of those things that, uh, if anything, it'll be remembered for this like experiment gone wrong, you know, like not necessarily as a really super good movie, just as like, almost like an example that people could learn from in the future and stuff. Except that they don't, they keep like (laughs) every, every literally, I would say every what, two, two years, three years, we get a movie that has like big name director three or four big stars in it, like a can't miss up and coming writer or whatever. And it just like the final product is like incoherent. And yeah. you're just like, what, what happened here? It's gangster squad. Like it's a gangster mm-hmm. squad every couple of years. Yeah, definitely. Gangster squad. The, um, the snowman, uh, is, is one of those oh, ones. Yeah. 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 It, it's just like, it's, it's, it's absolutely mind boggling how those can turn out that way. It makes you wonder, like, how that, like, what attracts all these big names? Is it just the money? Like, at some point in time, like, is it just, like, are, is it, like, um, you know, is the, the characters really attaching you to this? Like, it, does it look good on paper? Then when you get to it, it's just is it like the Browns where they look good on paper, then everything just kind of falls apart for no reason. Yeah, like, I don't, I, dude, I don't, I don't know. Like, what of, I think the, my most, my most recent favorite of this is the Snowman. Um, mm-hmm. again, like you had Scorsese producing, you had, um, I, I want to say, was it the guy who directed, um, Wanted maybe was like the director of this movie. I'm looking it up right now. You could, you could double check there, but like, I mean, 
so you have Scorsese producing. There's a legitimate name. You bring in um, Fassbender, legitimate name. But like, and then like J.K. Simmons. Um, who else is in this? I know I'm missing like a ton Rebecca of Rebecca Ferguson. Rebecca Charlotte Ferguson's Gainsbourg, in it. Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer. <laughs> well, Val Kilmer's body, and then like they had to, because he that was like in the middle of his like throat cancer. So right, they had to redub his lines, um, which again one of those things that makes it seem even more bizarre. But like, like there's. They they should have known that there was trouble when they didn't change the name of the main character, who in Norwegian is Harry Hola, and in English is Harry Hole. <laughs> so like it's spelled like Hole, but it's pronounced Hola in Norwegian, okay. which would have okay, but they just kept it and they went forward with that, and no one thought that naming a character Harry Hole was a bad idea. Unfucking believable. Yeah, this guy did a Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Oh, that's was, who, yeah. Um, yeah, he's uh, it's basically like um, let the right one in in two thousand eight, and everything prior to that is um, like a Scandinavian movie of some kind. It looks like. Yeah, he's I, I yes, yeah, so and now I remember who this guy is. He's a good director. Um, so like, it's just it's just do nineteen eighty four throw the snowman in there. Gangster Squad is a really good one. Dude, there's just these these fucking mistake movies. And I think when you look at nineteen, when you look at Dune nineteen eighty four, David Lynch is po- maybe the worst possible match for this, in a very specific way. D- David Lynch is Blue Velvet. David Lynch is Mulholland yeah. Drive. David Lynch is Twin Peaks. He's not big budget sci fi action movie. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I'm not mistaken, he would have like the Elephant Man would have been like his predecessor or successor to dune so like um it, that, i think that was the big movie right before yeah oh so there's no fucking way in, like it's just a guy like not his genre you know what i'm saying like not his forte no not at all. i'm looking right now the elephant man yeah eraser head which i don't know if you've ever seen a eraser head yeah. that's something different altogether um eraser head the elephant man dune and then he says oof that did work out then I'll go do Blue Velvet. Fantastic. And then he does... I forgot that he directed so many music videos. Um, there's a ton of music videos in here. But, like, then he gets into Twin Peaks. And, like, that's that's probably where most everyone really, like, really gets to know what um, David Lynch does. Yeah, exactly. That's when he comes alive. That's when this whole, like, any of this crazy David Lynch fandom that exists in the world today starts with Twin Peaks. It doesn't start at Dune. No, no, not at all. All right, um... We're at the end here, correct? Yes, we are, dude. We made it through the the episode and everything. I was very, very, very happy to talk about this movie, dude. Like, the Jess is just getting sick of me talking about Arrakis in the desert and all <laughs> the shit. So it's good to talk to this about with somebody else. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, I'm 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 glad I got. Especially, I'm glad I got to get some thoughts about um, about 1984 off my chest too. Um, this is this is beyond a worthy a worthy successor to that movie in that attempt. Um, Dune Dune Twenty One is if you if you haven't seen it in theaters yet, like you owe yourself. Obviously, if you've already watched it on HBO Max, fine. But now you need to go see it as big as possible because it's Denis Villeneuve makes movies that demand you go see them in a movie theater. Yeah, if there everybody out there like you've, we've had the quarantine, all this stuff. There, you know, people haven't been able to go to the movies for a while, and if you're going to make a triumphant return to the theater do it with this one. This is by far and away the movie to like get back into the fucking uh, routine of going to the movies and everything. It's a phenomenal start to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. All right, Chema. Um, anything else? 
I do not have anything else, dude. So if you want to lead us out of here, we can call it a day. All right. Uh, for Adam Chemielewski, this is Matt Pagel. Uh, thanks for thanks for exploring Arrakis with us. Um, and as always, thanks for downloading, streaming, listening, however you, you get this podcast. Um, we appreciate it. Um, if you want to find us, you can find us uh, at Polish, Ka- Polish Kaiju and at Citizen Pegs across all social media. And uh, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, that's the occasionalist, and uh, we'll be there. We'll be there. I don't know, at least twice a month, sometimes three times a month for you. Um, and if that's not enough, there's a back catalog of probably like a hundred and probably a hundred individual episodes, but about 140, you know, including two parters and specials and stuff like that. So there's plenty for you wherever you get your podcast. So for Adam Chemielewski, this is Matt Pagel saying thanks, and we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time, everyone. Thank you.